Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Ask the Industry podcast, episode 122. I'm comedian Simon Kane, and for those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio, and today, screenwriting and script editing. Jeremy Dyson is an English author, musician, and screenwriter who, along with Mark Gattis, Steve Pemberton, and Reese Shearsmith, are the League of Gentlemen. I got him on to talk about how Ghost Stories was created, his horror film and play that he wrote with his childhood friend Andy Nyman, as well as all the knockbacks, setbacks and rejections that that went through to get to where it is today, as well as the future of that and the new project that he's working on, which is really exciting. It's an, it's a, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to, I nearly said what it was. I, you'll hear about it in there. He, he alludes to it a bit better than I would and I don't want to ruin it for him. So there's that. Um, also how he picked his agent what he was doing to make ends meet when he was doing the first series of The League. All of these things. Outstanding episode. I really loved it. If I'm honest with you, it's one of my top 10 episodes of the podcast ever. I I would highly recommend this to anyone because script writing and editing is such an important thing in all areas of comedy except maybe improv that it's just got so much in it so i really recommend it and well done you for picking this episode if you are new here please don't forget to hit that subscribe button if you're old here please do remember to give us an honest ideally positive review in itunes and either way please do join the facebook group it's called ask the industry podcast and it's on facebook obviously but for now let's listen to the ask the industry podcast with jeremy dyson so as to whether I uh, yeah, knew I was going to end up writing or I was aiming at being a writer when I was young, I de- as a child, I never thought of myself as a writer, but I did have a fascination with um, production and making film and TV, you know, from almost as soon as I, I, I was watching it. And it partly fueled probably by Doctor Who. There, was a, there were two editions of a book called The Making of Doctor Who, both of which I got bought. You know, one one was about seven and then the other one must have come out when I was about 10. That lit a fire, along with I had a real interest in special effects. And I got another book bought one Christmas called Movie Magic by John Brosnan. So the first thing I thought I was going to do was be a special effects man. That's what I wanted to do, was um, make mod- make models of spaceships, basically. But then I, not long after that, I developed a, a proper love of, of 
comedy. You know, growing up in the 70s, there was a load of great TV comedy on. And because it was just on three channels, paradoxically, rather than the, you know, infinite amount that's out there now, it was much easier to navigate and access because it was all, to use a modern world, curated for you. You know, I, from just watching stuff with with my parents and sitting down and enjoying Morecambe Wise and then discovering that I like Benny Hill more than anybody else. And then from there, leaping to the goodies. And then Monty Python would have been a first passion when I was about 11. That really lit a fire. Python I discovered through the ancillary stuff, through the, because I, you know, I was too young to watch it when it went out, but through the LPs, the films. And I had a comedy friend at school, Steve Cook, who both, who, and we shared the passion. And we used to, from being about 11 or 12, we started improving our own comedy uh, onto cassettes, tape cassettes. So I was doing that all through my teenage years with Steve. And I also had a Super 8 camera. I was, again, I was very fortunate to have attentive and encouraging parents who, you know, who kind of knew what I loved and fed it. And that made, made a massive difference. So I made little stop motion animation films on Super 8. And it was all quite haphazard. I was I was very undisciplined as a kid. So, uh, whereas I look at my own kids now, who are both remarkably disciplined and have rigor, partly because they're girls, I think. I uh, I didn't have that. So that's an awfully sexist thing to say. I just realised. Um, but I but but I think actually girls are when they're kids are loosely speaking maybe more um, diligent than boys. Or at least mine are anyway. So yes, that that was where I was coming from. But I didn't. None of that I would call writing. And the writing came much later. So I was. Uh, it was. I went to art college with a view to going to sort of do some kind of filmmaking course, of which there were less in those days. This was you know mid eighties. Uh, so I did a foundation course with a view to. There was a course in Manchester, a film uh, undergraduate course, and there was one in Nottingham, which was a fine art course which had a, a filmmaking leaning. So I, that's why I was doing the foundation course. And I sort of, while I started writing, I think it was for one of my final projects. It was two things. One, I'd, one I'd, I had another love, which was ghost stories, supernatural fiction, starting with all the stuff I'd read as a kid. I, I, I loved ghost stories as a kid and read loads of classic anthologies. And then as I, in my teenage years, I was read widely with science fiction and, uh, and discovered Stephen King who was having his first flourish then and uh, sort of gobbled him up and then via Stephen King I came across Ramsey Campbell who who King had um, rhapsodised about in his book Dance Macabre Ramsey's a, an English author still with us brilliant brilliant writer King had gone on about one story in particular called um, The Collection not The Collection The Collector so, and I had to track this and it was hard to track Ramsey's stuff down or at least it was for me because there weren't many bookshops uh, then and there were no big bookshops like Waterstones and I found um in smith's i found a, a collection of his short stories and that lit a fire again like python did and I, from it was almost i read that i thought well, this is what i want to do and the next day i after devouring his collection i sat down and started writing uh, my own version of a ramsey story and and from then and there and from there on in i you know i was doing that i was writing through copying ramsey i kind of found my own voice other writers fed into that process as well later namely Robert Aikman's another one who I started copying so that's when that was just as I was finishing art college yeah and I'd you know I'd also written sort of journal stuff that was part of my final project and people had read it and said oh you should you should write more 
you, you can write really well. So that was a discovery that I had a, a sort of vocation to write stories and that I had a, you know, a, an ability or a facility that I didn't really, hadn't really been aware of. Then I didn't, I got a place to do fine art on the filmmaking course in Nottingham and I didn't take it because the main reason being, or at least I told myself, I was, I also was really into music and I was playing in a band in Leeds called Flowers for Agatha. I was playing keyboards and, you know, we were enjoying some success. We'd got a record de deal with a local label, uh, you know, we'd had Airplay, Radio 1 Airplay. And so it, if I'd have gone to Nottingham, I would have had to give up the band and it was too painful because it felt like something was going to happen and I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't I, I just couldn't muster leaving the band so I as a compromise I I took a year out to work out what to do and then I did a philosophy degree at Leeds University which was a compromise because it, it wasn't as much fun as doing the creative thing that I knew I would have loved but it allowed me to appease my parents you know be on a university degree course and pl still play in the band of course the band then split up about a year into the course and I was left doing a philosophy degree which for the first two years didn't really click with me at all but then in the third year it did when you could specialize and pick your subjects and I chose philosophy of uh, literature and I did a, a, a course on metaphor which had which was really terrific and there was a really another really brilliant course called history of ideas that was taught by a great teacher there called john christie professor that was kind of following big ideas through literature sort of starting with frankenstein and then working through he was a big science fiction fan john so loads of great science fiction that i never read with big ideas and really looking at it quite rigorously and that that really really and that's sort of again lit a third fire which is still with me now that kind of deep thinking about narrative and story that is an, a bit of an obsession so then I graduated and was way off from where I thought I would be or what I wanted to be which was in some way in making stuff but the one thing that had happened is I'd met at Leeds University, uh, I'd been introduced to, in fact, it was just before I started, in my year out, I'd been introduced to, no, it wasn't, it was my first year, Mark Gatiss. Uh, that was through my mutual friend, our mutual friend, Gordon Anderson, who, who I, I'd been at school with. And Gordon had, did, about the time I had discovered I loved writing, Gordon had discovered a, 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 a um, facility for drama, but he never knew he had. And he'd started, uh, he went to um, Bretton Hall to do drama. And that's where he met Mark. And almost within the, his first week there, he'd met Mark and he'd rung me and said, you've got to meet this guy. He's just like you. And I hated that because I hated being pigeonholed so, uh, you know, so easily. So I sort of resisted, but he wouldn't let up. And, and that Christmas, he kind of organised a, 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 a get together at his house where I had to meet Mark. And of course, we clicked straight away. Uh, Gordon was absolutely right. And but, and then and then you know we kept seeing each other while he was at Breton and then it wasn't really it was at the tail end of him being at Breton that we started writing together we wrote a comedy script for fun and that was the first time apart from you know doing my stuff with Steve at school where I'd sat down with someone else to do some comedy who had the shared the same tastes and we were literally just doing it to entertain each other it wasn't with any kind of view to send it out or anything and then I left Leeds as Mark was graduating. Mark stayed in Leeds and I I went to get a job in London and I really didn't want to go. I wanted to stay with Mark because I sort of knew I wanted to do something with him without knowing what it was. But then I went and did this job in London, which was a, uh, working in the, in film distribution, which was really miserable for me because it was on the, you know, it was on the periphery of the thing I wanted to be at the heart of. And I had a miserable time and I, I got really ill and I ended up coming back to Leeds. But, but I'd also applied to do an MA in script writing 
finally kind of thinking, right, I've got to, you know, get my act together and do this properly. And there was a course that had just started up in Leeds at the Northern Film School. It was established by a visionary guy called Richard Woolley, who'd had this idea of setting up a film school to rival the London film schools. Because there were so few places then that would do that. And he had a really clever idea where that you know i guess it was copying what they did in london but maybe not where they had the uh, they had would have a writing course and a directing course and the two would one would support the other and the, the writers would write short films the directors would make them um but the, as i remember it then the directing course was in sheffield and the writing course was in leeds and they, they had to go back and forth but anyway so i i, I got a place in the second year of, in its second year of of running, maybe its second or third year, uh, and it was a re- it was a great course. It was a really good year. It was one of the most enjoyable years that I'd had, along with the foundation course. And I discovered it, that I, again, it was more confirmation that I, you know, I had people telling me that I could write, and that was a that was a massive thing to have to discover that I uh, that I could do it and 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 I could do it well. You know that because none of this had been picked up on at school or anywhere else, so it was kind of new. You know, it was a, it was a discovery, and it was a, a surprise actually to discover that that this was my, seemed to be my thing, writing, because I thought it would have been making. Now, of course, I've come back round on a big loop and I now make as well and and that in fact that that journey back to making started when the league went on to TV and you could predate it to actually when we were doing the live shows because I was I was you know in a crude way because I was opping the shows I was doing the sound and the lights sat at the back from the from the get-go uh apart from the very first show when I was in it so you know it was a long and windy route and I had to discover all these things before I could, you know, sort of start being me. Was it was it frustrating? Because you, you, you said you don't like to be pigeonholed, and yet people were saying, oh, write more, write more. If, if that wasn't sort of the path you necessarily were picking for yourself or, or thinking would be your, your way, was it frustrating having people kind of... Oh no, because it was coming from you know deep within me. So it wasn't. It wasn't. I wasn't being told what to do. It was the opposite. I was definitely choosing it. Um, I was just. I was just deeply surprised and by it, and because it wasn't what I'd anticipated. And that I find fascinating. You know that that you sort of discover yourself. And but it was there latent. Uh, but I hadn't intuited. I'd intuited a bit of it, which was which was the making part. But I hadn't the other part of it. No, it didn't. It didn't bother me. I mean, I was. I mean, if anything, I pushed the making bit away, actually. Once I'd got onto the, the scriptwriting MA, I definitely wholeheartedly embraced the scriptwriting bit of it 100% and sort of forgot about the making bit temporarily. So you could, if you don't, if that was 92, 93, I was doing the writing course. Then we started doing the, what became the league, mid-94, putting the shows on. And then it, when we were doing the first series on telly which was 98 we were making it mid 98 onwards and i was on set i suddenly remembered oh that's what i wanted to do it was like it was like i'd forgotten and remembered of course and then I, and i was really fortunate in that I, our first producer sarah smith i got on really well with and she was very supportive to me because she recognized i was in an odd position or unusual position because the other three were on camera and she said well come on as a trainee um ap assistant producer that was still the tail end of the bbc having those kind of organized schemes for training people up on in-house productions so i went in as a as um as a trainee assistant producer on the first series and you know and learned 
the practice of the theory that I'd vaguely knew, you know, just from reading. But but that's not, you know, there's no substitute for. And then the other piece of luck was I I got on really well with Steve Bendlack, our, our terrific, wonderful director, and and I, you know he was just perfectly happy to have me sat next to him all the time when uh, on set, which I which I did, you know, and so just watched him work and and absorbed the process, best way of learning, you know, it was. Uh, and then, and then, because I, you know, and then because I was, and then second series, I became assistant producer full, and so was given some responsibility in terms of sitting in in mixes and dubs and what have you, and you know, and so you just just begin that ramp up to voluntarily taking on more more and more responsibility and learning that way. Yeah, totally. And and, and that hands on thing, I feel, is is slightly harder to do now at the BBC. I feel like less uh, opportunities being given. Less- yeah, they don't have that. There's no formal structure for that anymore, as far as I know. Because you know, they don't, they've lost their in-house production arm for a start. So. Well, they've got their they've got their commercial BBC studios, like yeah, yeah. But 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 you know the the the, the, the days of those you know those schemes where they would train directors up, which was still running when I was when I was when we were going in. It was the tail end of it, but they were still there. That's gone, as far as I know. Yeah, no, no. I I, I had an interview with them, and uh, yeah, it's, it's become BBC Studios, which doesn't do that same thing. No, it's, and basically they have to function basically like any other large independent producer. So yeah, yeah, which is a total shame. And, and... yeah, it's a, well when you look at what came out of the BBC and who came out of that, you know, that John Schlesinger and Ridley Scott, and you know they trained up a whole. Um, you know, Mike Lee would have come out of that, and anyway. Those were different times. Yeah, totally. And when you first started writing together, and and you were you were sort of just doing it for fun, and and you were saying that you were influenced by a lot of like writers that you've been reading, and 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 that had kind of not maybe come into your brain consciously, but sort of that osmosis of consuming so much of someone else's work, it obviously is going to have an impact on what you were doing. Were you conscious of that when you were writing together? And did that ever manifest itself as, as any level of like imposter syndrome of like, oh, I, I have to write like someone that I know and, and I'm not going to learn my voice? Or was it always kind of, I'm just going to go with the process and, and see where it goes? Yeah, it, it was. Uh, we never suffered from imposter syndrome. We were so arrogant. <laughs> we were so full of ourselves. So we <laughs> maybe arrogance is unfair, but we were confident. We were very confident, and I think you know one of the extraordinary things was that we shared all these uh, these odd little reference points. So you know, uh, so for instance, one of the things that me and Mark bonded over was uh, was Robert Aitman. You know, Mark knew Aitman and loved him just like I did. So you know, we had met all these references that were outside of comedy i mean we had the obvious comedy references with you know with python and and everything that came with that and and followed from that but then uh, sort of beyond that we shared the more what was then more eclectic taste like alan bennett which was a rare you know it was rarer thing to sort of know and be familiar with bennett then at least it was mid 80s and when we first met it was pre-talking heads victoria wood Obviously, Mike, the, the Mike early Mike Lee comedies like Abigail's Party and Nuts in May were sort of seminal for us. So you know these were things that you'd cherished on your own and never really had anyone else to talk about to them. And suddenly you had three friends, three new friends who shared, who knew all those reference points, all the same, almost identical mix of things, and also the horror stuff as well. You know, we all 
love theatre of blood we all love these things that we'd found on late night horror screenings on bbc2 you know when we were in our teenage years or younger so they were part of the mix and so because there was this weird synchronicity between these very what you felt were very private passions up until that point that that was like rocket fuel i think to our creativity and the other thing of course is that they were unbelievably gifted you know i mean as performers they would i was sort of you know that i was sort of staggered by how good they were and they were they would you know that that was how they were when i first met them but as writers equally you know i can remember quite often going around to stephen reese's flat where they were living together in um, highgate and you know and they'd read out what they'd written that week and it, it was you can i couldn't believe how good it was it was it was you know it was as good as anything that you'd ever seen and you know that was a clear-sighted thing it wasn't you, you wished it you wished that that wasn't the case because because you were you know you were kind of floored by how good they were and how could you compete with that but then of course it had the great effect that of, which is what a good collaboration can do of rate you had to raise your game to stay in the game so it was like you'd try and you know not outdo but try and you know match and uh so you had to work you really had to you know you really had to work to you couldn't just toss off anything because it wouldn't have made the grade we were very sensitive to each other as a group in terms of we didn't no one rode roughshod over anyone else and we came up with all kinds of mechanisms for voting sort of you know anonymous votes on what material was going to go in the edinburgh shows and things like that um, but it was still quite a rigorous process in terms of only selecting the stuff that was you know that really worked well there was no appeasing of anyone's better feelings you know yeah it was kind of like put your egos aside in some ways absolutely absolutely yeah yeah and no no and i you know i sort of appreciated that it was tough you know it was uh, but at the same time i really respected that that was sort of unquestionably built into to how we were going to do it yeah i was going to ask because it sounds like up until that point a lot of the feedback you were getting was very positive from yeah. from outsider people who maybe uh, i don't want to say their opinions didn't matter as much but i imagine that the three of their opinion would have been more valuable to you than yeah. say just someone else who's read a thing you've done and you know said it's good so i'm just wondering whether all of a sudden getting constructive feedback from people you clearly want to work with and and think are better than you uh, I, I hope i'm not putting words in your mouth there but i think no but you, you yeah that, that's right you were kind of i was I say i was kind of in awe of their ability and um so that that's absolutely the case i just had enormous respect for them from the get-go you know and wanted to wanted to work with them because it was the most exciting thing and um it was everything you'd ever dreamed of you know it's everything from the comedy side of me it was everything i dreamed of from you know when i was 11 and and had first come across python it was like because i did you know that's what you wanted you were i was constantly as a as a huge admirer and fan of of that I was for everything one because I'd missed Python's birth, you know, because I was too young for it and was on was enjoying their afterlife. As a fan, I was then looking for well, what's the next thing and uh, what's going to be the thing that can be my Python. And so, so not like nine o'clock news came along and which was great but that didn't quite fit the bill it didn't sort of have the you know the thing about python was they were a gang they weren't put together well of course they were slightly put together by a, a producer but they became a gang and then after the, then it was the young ones and the young ones was probably you know in the comic strip and that crew but the young ones was probably the closest thing to yes this is my python at the time because they felt like a get more like a gang and then it was vic and bob you know there was other stuff that you were enjoying along the way but then vic and bob was a thing that you could own and so 
that was, you know, that was the thing that you wanted, was to do something like that. And then suddenly I found myself in this position. Well, I didn't find myself. I actively pursued it <laughs> with great vigour. That, 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 that I was, you know, you felt you were on the cusp of being able to do this thing that you've been dreaming about. If we take it back slightly... And we go with, so we're talking 92, you said? This was 1992? Uh, well, me and Mark started writing together in earnest in, say, 92, I would say. You know, in terms of we wrote a script and sent it out. 92, 93. We wrote, a, it was a spoof sitcom. It was a, it was a bit like Austin Powers, actually. It was the idea of three 60s superheroes who'd been frozen in the revolving restaurant of the post office tower and uh, revived in the present day. It was the same conceit as Austin Powers, but pre-Austin Powers. And we wrote that as a half-hour half script and we sent it out and got mostly rejection and maybe the odd tiny flicker of interest. How old were you at that point? Sorry, just... Uh, so, 26. And so that was your first finished script at 26? Uh, well, I'd, I'd done... Well, it depends if you count the half, first half hour that we wrote, which was called Bedlam, which was a sort of spoof of every Perry and Croft sitcom rolled into one, but set in a lunatic asylum. That would have been sort of 1989 that we wrote that. But yeah, we didn't send that out. And then I did write stuff at, on my MA course, and I wrote a feature script um, on the MA course, which was... Um, you know what you did that was your final project but yes it was the first stuff that i'd sent out yeah i was 20 say 26 okay and and well two questions out of that one what were you doing at the were you working at the time do you have like a part-time job yeah i was working part-time at waterstones which i did through my ma carried on doing that uh, in the early days of the league I, so i was working in league i was in waterstones in leeds and then i transferred to london once we started doing it in earnest you know i had to move back to london because it was obvious it was just obvious there wasn't a, a second of doubt but that was what i should be doing so yeah uh yeah we all had part-time jobs or come or signed on or combination of both yeah and so you've gone through this sort of uh, discovery of knowing that people say that your work's great you've met this group of people who you really want to work with you're really enjoying it you think their work's great you you, you love your work but you're, but you're sending stuff out and, and the initial reaction from industry, as we put it, was negative. Yeah, apart from, as I say, the odd flicker of interest. But yeah, essentially, you know, nobody was biting our hand off. It was mainly rejections. Uh, in fact, one of the things I cherish is a, is a rejection from Armando, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> when he was, he must have been reading scripts at, at, at um, one of the production companies. Uh, I can't remember who, who it was from, but, but yes. That's a common experience. Yeah, oh, no, I'm sh very few people get stuff immediately. I'm just yeah. wondering what it was like to go from, you know, oh, okay, everyone's saying this is great, it's great. Oh, no, there was no surprise in it. No, there was no surprise in it at all. It was what you'd expect. You didn't expect, you know, you hoped, yeah. but, but you didn't expect. And, you know, there was... And, in fact, I think I don't think you could do it unless you had a slightly masochistic taste for rejection and, uh, and, the, and the, you know attendance well i'll show you you know you can't you almost need it yeah totally and so you then started taking up shows with the other three to edinburgh so we'd all been working together in various combinations but not as a group you know we'd me and mark had, had written 
these scripts. Uh, Mark had written with Steve. They'd done a couple of one-act plays. Stephen Reese had done a couple of one-act plays that they'd, uh, some, they'd either had rehearsed readings or put on. And Steve had started a, a theatre company with Gordon, the old friend that introduced me and Mark together in the first place, called 606. They were a really terrific little theatre company and they put on... Gordon had a knack for finding really odd, forgotten plays and, and, and putting them on at some little uh, uh, pub theatres. Interesting little pub, you know, venues around London. Uh, so, it, and in fact, so what happened was Gordon, it was Gordon that kept saying you should all be working together. You should pool your resources as a group and work together. He, uh, he'd, he'd, there was a, he'd been asked to remount one of his pl- shows at the end of 94 in a, in a little festival at uh, the old cockpit theatre in Edgware. He couldn't get the cast back together. So he said, look, I've got this slot. Put on, why don't you, this is the thing I've been saying. Come and put this, put a show on. Put, 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 put your show on here. I think we'd been to look, I think we'd already been talking about it because we'd been, I remember going to look at some other venues. But anyway, we de- that was the galvanising thing. It was something definite. So we wrote the show and we put it on and I was in it then. There were no previews? You just, you just did it one out of the gate? Yeah, we did. I think we did four nights or five nights. But yes, we just did it. And it was, you know, and it, again, it was clear from the get-go. Well, two things were clear. One, it was the three of them. And I, you know, I, I was at best a talented amateur, but I didn't have the drive or, or wish or, you know, passion for acting. I wasn't, I kind of liked the idea of being on stage and people clapping, but, but in terms of creatively, you know, that wasn't my passion. Or, and I didn't have their, you know, phenomenal ability either. And you know, so, so I, it was quite easy to say, right, I'm going to stick to writing. That's my place in this. It's the three of you going forward because it was so obvious. But the material was really good. You know, you knew you knew it was a good show because the audience laughed, and um, uh, you know, it worked, really worked as a show. It was, there was there was no there wasn't a second of doubt about carrying on doing it. So then the challenge was, well, how do we do it? You know, we we were just we weren't didn't have a promoter. We were just supporting it ourselves. We sort of had a year of trying to get get on the stand up circuit, which was you know sketch shows were so unfashionable at that point in the mid nineties. It was like seen as old fashioned, and and we sort of as a fuck you, we we doubly embraced that by putting on dinner jackets to do the show as if we were some old footlight show. You know, the irony being we weren't anything of the kind. And it didn't work on the stand-up circuit. It was deadly because you'd go on after a stand-up and drop a fourth wall down to do the sketch and it would just die. So that wasn't going to work. So Steve, who had the idea, I think, of, look, let's, let's, let's do our own night, you know, with vague memories of reading about the establishment club and things like that. So we, we, um, they, he, Steve had a relationship at the Canal Cafe Theatre from 606. So he said, let's, book, let's just book like every Monday night for three months and we'll we'll make it our night and we'll just you know change the material regularly to try and make you know we could we could populate it it was only a tiny little theater 50 60 seater so you could populate it with people you knew between the four of us at first and then if we thought if we kept changing the material they might come back and see see it more than once which is where the continuing narratives were born because it was character comedy from the get-go uh, you know quite quickly we worked out that was what interested us was character comedy and these grotesques can i just check sorry so the night yeah. is just you guys performing for an hour yeah, for an hour yeah and you know we paid for it. we put the money in to hire the place and we covered our costs and we made a small enough profit to then we saved all the money steve was very good in terms of the business side of it and you know we we saved the money that we any profit that we made and it all went into a kitty we did two runs as it seems to remember i think we did a sort of we did a sort of early part of the year one and the spring one 
and it meant by the summer we'd had you know we had hour, about six hours of material that had been tested in front of an audience we took the best hour of it up to edinburgh you know we put we just did the best of basically we again we were doing it ourselves it was our money i think mark knew somebody who was you know was just starting out as a promoter you know in a sort of very small way and they gave us a help he gave us a helping hand i think with the printing the flyers and stuff and getting posters done and Mark also had a contact who who knew the guy who ran the Pleasance. That was a you know that was ter- that was a big deal. Pleasance was one of the key venues in Edinburgh comedy venues. And this guy came and saw one of the London shows at the Canal Cafe, and he said, "Great," and let us and booked us into tiny little attic venue. But we were still taking ourselves up at our own expense, you know. And we and we you know we didn't know anyone up there, and nobody knew us. We just. So I was going to say, were there any other sketch groups doing stuff? Did yeah. you meet others, or was it like we're still the outliers of? There were other sketch groups. Armstrong and Miller were up there. I think it was their second year. Matt and David were up there. That was their second year, and and you know we met them all when we were there and and quickly bonded. The the cheese shop were doing it. Uh, that was Dave Lamb and uh, uh, his colleagues. So, you know, there were other sketch groups, but it well, again, they were generally still thought of as being old hat and passe. So, so at, this, at this point, have you got an agent? Have you got no. representation? So, you know, we had a proper fairy tale three weeks. We took ourselves up. First two shows, you know, we had three men and a dog in. And then the third, on that third show, we got a, we got a five star review in The Scotsman, I think suddenly the next show was full and because it was a tiny venue you know it was like a 70 seater or something it was quite easy to sell out and once you were sold out once you go on the the sold out board at the front of the venue and it just feeds on itself plus we were picking up more and more good reviews across that first week and it was a strong show you know it was a really it was a really strong show it had material that ended up in the tv show so by the end of it we had our choice of agents unbelievably you know we had we had offers from five or six different agents and the bbc interested in fact the bbc more than interested because we got we ready to sign us on what was then called a bi media deal where you would do a radio series first and go on to to do it on television which was a terrific thing it was great to kind of try it out on tv and then i mean on the radio or not try it out but to do a version on the radio and then take stock and you know build it as you went onto tv before we move forward from there in, in terms of edinburgh and in terms of reviews was it you had pr or you emailed reviewers and you asked them to come see you? like how how did you get the first reviewer in i suppose or was it they just wandered in it's just blind luck i say, i mean again i think mark maybe we did have a bit of help with pr again it was mark mark was a brilliant networker still is and i think there was i think it was at bridget um i can't remember her surname but she she helped us with the pr she certainly helped us the second she must have been helping us the first year so maybe she did help get people in but it was all quite informal and friendly you know it wasn't it was doing us a favor as much as us paying her lots of money because we didn't have lots of money uh she liked the show and uh, you know wanted to help out so yes that must have been the case um but it definitely you know, had its own momentum. Okay, so let's talk about agents really quickly. So, let, I think you said you had five offers? Yeah, we met four or five agents, yeah. Okay, and they wanted to represent you individually or as a group? As a group. Okay, and and as a... I mean, obviously, that's the dream for a lot of performers and, and something that is 
very much unheard of these days. You know, you might get one, two, you know, most be interested. So I suppose at that stage, were these agents, because uh, I know you're with PBJ? You're with P- yeah. yeah. So what were they like at, at that point? Because obviously right now, when you look at PBJ, they're so much more established than they might have been when you originally worked with them. No, they were pretty established then because you just looked at the client list and it was it was all your heroes. You know, we couldn't, you couldn't believe the client list. It was Barry Humphreys, Vic and Bob, Chris Morris, Armando, Harry Enfield. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> Where do we sign? So, so how did you how did you decide? To, I mean, there's obvious reasons why you would go with them, but did you? What, what was the discussion? Was it you're working for us, we're working for you, we work together? We were deeply impressed by Chiggy. You know, she was just, she She's was just hugely impressive. She and she was. It was such a you know such a, a a good meeting in terms of. I mean, you know, they were all great. The agents. It was like you would have been happy to go with any one of them, but I think you had to make a decision. And and Chiggy, I remember the one thing Chiggy did differently is the other agents had all told us what they were going to do for us, and Chiggy said, "Right, I'm going to start by telling you what I'm not going to do for you." And she did a list, went through a list of what she wasn't going to do for us. And um, and that, that impressed What was us. on the list of things she... I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> I can't remember. I just remember that's how she started. It, it was like the exact opposite of everybody else. And you just there was something very impressive about that. Okay. And, and in terms of when she first took you on, because it sounds like a dream situation for her as well, given that you've got a BBC interest technically without an agent. So she's there now to kind of facilitate contracts and, and sort out all the, the paperwork. Yeah, and also I think she had a relationship with Sarah Smith, who was, who was, our, you know, who was the producer who'd, who'd first found us, uh, and, uh, or at least, you know, was the producer who came in. And, and then John Plowman was over Sarah at the BBC. You know, he was the exec. And, and I think, you know, he had a relationship with PBJ. So, so that helped. I mean, that, 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 I don't know whether that was invoked in the meeting or not, but I, it all flowed, you know. So for me, uh, whenever I've watched The League, it feels so visual as a medium. I can only imagine how, uh, maybe not frustrating, but an, a challenge it must have been to take it from live, where, uh, and I've, I, I'll be honest with you, I've never seen it live, where it, it must be such an atmospheric and an immersive thing to, to kind of, like you say, break the fourth wall and to, and to bring, bring in these characters to life in, in a way that, you know, com- comedy doesn't always do. Um, to move that to radio where you can't actually even physically see, you know, sort of what, what's going on. How was the process of, uh, I, I assume you were very much involved in the script editing of that. What was it like trying to, to build worlds in people's heads who maybe hadn't had a chance to see it in Edinburgh, maybe didn't see it at the Canal Cafe, w- weren't aware of what you were doing? Well, we embraced it. We embraced every stage of it. Although, you know, we were 100%, you know, knowing we wanted a TV show. We embraced, I mean, none of the stages to the TV show felt like a poor relation to it. Can I ask, is that why you went to Edinburgh? You originally went there to try and get a TV show? No, we went there to get noticed. But the thing was, you know, they, they because the three of them had were very theatrical naturally and had a and had you know and had, had been at drama school for three years and loved theatre. Doing the theatre version of it wasn't a compromise. It that in itself, you know, was a pleasure. And and you know, the, the, there's some. The, the, it's certainly true that some of those sketches, their best incarnations were those for those shows, those original shows at the Canal Cafe. Because it was like proper theatre of cruelty. It was like the you know the impact of doing some of those sketches in a tiny room when the audience is that far from you, and you know, and you're drinking a pint of piss and throwing it all over the front row, and you know, or or, or Ross is being whacked in the face with a 
uh, with the clipboard by Pauline, you know, and it looks real. Uh, that, that was its perfect version in, in lots of ways. And it also that we loved the discipline of that we came hit upon quite quickly that you were allowed one prop or item of clothing per character. And that really forced us to write character. You know, you had to create the character in the, in the dialogue and in the action because you, you weren't putting prosthetics on, you know. Was that was that just due to how much space you had to? Yeah, you had a t- the canal cafe. There was a tiny little cupboard off in right. one wing. You know, there was no backstage, so everything had to go in a basket. And likewise, Edinburgh. You know, so it had the show had to be portable. And then when it came to doing doing the radio version again, it was exciting because you were recording in the radio theatre. You know, and we were all because we were all such comedy fans. You go in the radio theatre and you just think the goons, uh, you know, and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and you know all these radio things that we did. John Shuttleworth, who was on at the time, that we adored. Uh, not that that was done in the radio theatre, but you know, we didn't. Radio comedy was still a brilliant thing, and it was, you know, don't forget we was we were just fanboys, pinching ourselves. We couldn't believe that we were in that position that we suddenly were doing a radio show. So all it was was unbelievably exciting. There was no sense of frustration or oh, I can't wait. I wish we were doing visuals. It was it, we were we were you know struggling to catch our breath that that we were doing this. Did did it ever feel a bit like? I don't want to say unjustified, but do you ever feel like uh, sort of, oh my god, they're going to find us out? They're going to, they're going to, they're going to realise that they've picked the wrong group because. because no, again, I, I refer you to my earlier answer of, of, of disgraceful self confidence. We were just, we couldn't have been more confident about what we were doing. Uh, you know, we were, we were just. There wasn't a shred of doubt about. There was a shred of doubt that that that. Um, uh, you know that we might not get picked up, or or it might it might not work out. But I do remember, and Reese Reese often quotes it that in, a, in a, one of our early shows that we did at Brighton, which was probably pre Edinburgh, us me and him sat on the beach having a conversation where I and I said, "Look, the only thing that can stop this happening is us, because we we could all see how how the what you know." How good it was! You just you, you know you had because you could see you just you just trusted your own judgment of what it was, which didn't mean that we didn't every bit of thing that we did was brilliant. You know, some sketches were good and others weren't. But the the enterprise, you could see how good it was or how good it could be, and and you know I could see how terrific they were as performers and as writers. So that was your fuel, and and you just knew as long as you kept going and kept faith in it, you would get there because you just would. You just didn't, you couldn't doubt it. But you know what you didn't know was how long you had to keep that faith because it might have been ten years. Yeah, it it sounds like it was a good thing that you all had each other to ground yourselves, but within the group as well, there was still this belief, you know. Well, we had each other to ground ourselves and also to motivate each other. So, and it was a dance between, you know, being being rigorous and strict enough that you're keeping the quality control up, and you know, and then motivating each other when you got knockbacks because we did have knockbacks along the way. It wasn't it wasn't just a rise. You know, we haven't really talked about the knockbacks, but we had, but the, you know, we had um, we had disappointments and things before we signed uh, with PBJ. How long after sort of that Edinburgh did you still have part-time jobs? Uh, I still had I still had mine while we were doing the recording the radio series, and then I took the plunge and gave it up at the start of '98. So the radio series had finished, and we were then going into doing our pilot. Um, although the series was you know sort of commissioned, it was it wasn't quite greenlit. 
it was sort of greenlit in theory and actually we found out afterwards that there was a, it was a real struggle but we they kept it from us but but it was john plowman that kept you know he absolutely he was he just wouldn't take no for an answer and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed until 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 it was green lit but they sort of kept that from us a bit so so as far as i was concerned we were doing our tv series that year and so it felt appropriate to give up the job and it was scary yeah i was gonna i was gonna ask like what did it feel like the first morning after you've sort of finished your last shift to be like oh what do i oh yeah, are, yeah. exactly that you felt like you'd jumped out of a plane with no parachute i mean you know i could always i, I could have always gone back i could have you know i could have always if, if it had got desperate i could have i could have gone back and and you know but i didn't want to do that and um so it was scary and it was tough you know first year 18 months was tough living on no money and not knowing when more money was going to come and you know the obvious was it was there a moment with the radio show or maybe even with the first like or even just any of those seasons when you were making the tv show where you started to think maybe this is going to be a thing this is going to have a a following like was there any like uh, I don't know, a fan coming up to you or or I, I don't think you know this isn't when social media would have been around so you wouldn't have you know sort of had that no so we had good reviews you know and we'd had good reviews from sort of edinburgh onwards and we'd had press but we didn't have any sense of fans and when it was on the radio we didn't have any sense of fans you know because there was, wasn't much time for it to establish itself and so my first inkling was after the first series had gone out i was moving flats from where i was in arsenal to up the road in highbury the removal men came you know i'd hired a couple of men in a, with a van they saw i think they saw some they might have seen the perrier award we had perrier awards on the wall and that, or something they saw something and said that said league of gentlemen on it and they had, didn't make the connection that i had anything to do with it they must have thought it was like a bit of merchandise or something and i said oh i love that show uh, and then and i couldn't resist but say that you know that i was one of the writers and uh you don't give a fuck, do you? That that that's one way he drinks his own piss. You don't give a fuck, and that was exciting. That was like a badge to wear. Then that you, oh somebody, uh, some a man in you know who works as a removal man has seen it and knows it, and you know uh, that felt like something. But then the real marker wasn't until when we did the first tour, which was after the second series had gone out you know which was in and then the second series went out at the start of 2000 we did the tour in the autumn and it was that and we put it on sale and then you know mcintyre's had done it as a sort of fairly standard comedy tour and then then we got an inkling that it was selling because i think you know it was extending from the six weeks or whatever it had started out as but then it was the first night that was the watermark so I stood in the foyer with Paul Roberts, who's our promoter at Phil McIntyre's. And we stood there watching these people come in, Brist Bristol Colston Hall, so a big venue. And Paul said, who are these people? He said, but you can't pin them down. He said, it's not students. It's, uh, you know, it's not just young people. It's, uh, who are they? And it was, it was such a mix. It was like, you know, there were older people, there were families, there were... There were there were students, but there were there, it was such a kind of strange cross, you know, absolute cross section, like you got random cross section of of society, and they were, but they all the thing they had in common is they loved this show, and then obviously the the show then the then you knew when the show began, 
and and Mark Stephen Reese came out onto stage and a huge roar and it was like oh and that was that was that was when you knew so you know we were quite a way into it yeah yeah um, the, the difference now I suppose is with social media you get instant reactions yeah. from after shows and and if you know you were to do more more that would come back so how, how has social media impacted maybe how you write for things or, or did you think about that when you were doing the latest tour no no we kept it from our heads because we learned that you know on our various other enterprises to be disciplined about not paying too much attention so you know fortunately it didn't it wasn't around for our formative years because i think it's it would have been poison or you'd have to you'd have to you'd had to acquire a lot of discipline very quickly and so you know we're a bit older now and and perhaps a little bit more shielded from the temptations of i'm not saying we don't look but you know it's not it's not a point on the compass i don't think but it sounds like previous you you were either reading reviews or being told that you'd. Oh yeah, we always read our reviews. Always read our reviews. Yeah. So so is it a case of like you've got to a stage now where you kind of don't read reviews or you don't? No, I'm terrible. I wish I did. Mark's much better at not reading reviews. Mark Mark doesn't really read them, um, but I'm terrible. I I look at them all. You look at you got Google alerts and things. I haven't got Google alerts, but I will Google. Okay, fair enough. Um, yeah, and you've won and you won quite a lot of awards for for TV, and and I just wondered what awards made a difference to your other projects, and like what maybe helped you along to maybe get other things made, or at least you know for people to take other scripts or, or other work that you were doing outside of the league more seriously. I don't know if any individual award did that. I mean, yeah, the one that they 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 said the one that would do it was the BAFTA, and you know. The thing is, it's, an, it's more about an aggregate of everything, I think, in terms of, you know, whatever reputation you have. So it, it, the awards are just part of that. And and you learn quite quickly to, to you know, to have a healthy scepticism towards, towards awards. Um, because certainly once you sit on an awards panel, which we've all done, and you see what the process is, you sort of it helps puncture the mystique a bit in terms of it being an absolute judgment of one's ability um so obviously it's important because it's part of a bigger picture and they're lovely and wonderful things if you win them because of the excitement and and you know being in the game and so it's not to denigrate them in any way but having a having a clear-sighted understanding of what they are is helpful i think so yeah i wouldn't the, the 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 one i would say that was actually the you know the biggest deal on a personal and emotional level was the Perrier award because that was the first one and that was that was a massive massive life-changing moment in terms of uh, what it felt like you know not necessarily in terms of what it actually how it translated into material happenings but just in terms of what it felt like yeah like uh, even now the the that award i mean it's not called the perrier anymore but that award is uh very much like shining a light on a, a performer so much that it that it can't help but feel probably i've never had it so i don't know but it probably feels so uh you know humbling to go oh my god someone's noticed yeah exactly that and I, you know, and it felt like a, it changed everything. And, and and you obviously work as a script editor, and and you uh, for other people. And how was that process of starting to edit other people's scripts outside of sort of your? I wouldn't say bubble, but like this group that you've kind of worked with for so long. How did you kind of gain someone's trust to start working on there? Well, it never occurred to me to do it. It wasn't something. It was I got asked. So I think the first thing was. I got asked was properly that I can remember was Mark Wooden to do um, 
he was doing Shirley Ghostman and he was wanting to develop that to a, into a, a different kind of show. And uh, so that was about, would have been my first paying gig as a script editor, I think. And I loved Mark and I, I thought he was wonderful. So that, that was why I did it. It wasn't because I wanted to be a script editor. It was because um, uh, I just like, I wanted to be in a room with Mark, I think. So that was the first one. And then not long after that... I got approached about doing Armstrong and Miller and I'd always and I'd loved Ben and Zander up at Edinburgh when we first gone up and thought they were brilliant as performers and I'd loved their Channel 4 series so again it was it was as much about oh it'd be great to work with them as it was it would be to write I'm going to pursue a you know a side profession as a script editor and then it just sort of flew, flowed from that and then after after doing Armstrong and Miller Ben Cave, I got to know Ben Cavey at Tiger, and uh, he was a you know generous and lovely man. And he asked would, if I'd do Grandma's House and if I'd read the script. And I, and the same thing, I just loved Simon. I'm still, uh, you know, I, I was an enormous admirer of him. So it was it was always driven by who who the people were, rather than you know I must get a next job as a script editor. It was always it was on that. And I think pretty much everything I've done has been because I wanted sit in a room with whoever the people are you know so and I, I you know I, and again I pinched myself at the people I got to sit in a room with you know that I still get to sit in a room with from you know Kathy Burke and um, Matt Bainton and, and, and James Corden on Wrong Mans and, and Sharon Horgan on Dead Boss and you know it's like I can't believe I get to sit with that I've got to sit with those people and, and, and work on their shows and uh, and, it, and it goes on you know I'm, and, and what's lovely now of course is working with younger people I'm like working doing bad education with Jack Whitehall you know it was amazing because you know he's telling you about watching your show when he was 12 and <laughs> which was also <laughs> terrifying but um, uh, you know and, and then meeting Freddie and uh, Jack's writing partner on Bad Education and, and Freddie's brilliant and, and you know I love how the, how it all unfolds in a sort of organic way always try to follow enthusiasms you know being led by an enthusiasm for the, the material Yeah I was going to ask how you pick projects but it sounds like a lot of the projects A for you like you said come to you organically and B uh, it wasn't really you didn't need to pick you were like what they want they want me kind of thing Yeah exactly um, So, so do, do you often get uh, I mean, like, is it a case of your agent kind of self-selecting because they're like, "Oh, I know he likes these people. I'll give it, I'll give him this option." Or is it a case of you sometimes do get things where you're like, "I don't think, I, I don't think I, we would gel. I don't think we would work well." Like, how, how does that work? If I if I read a script and or watch a taster and it doesn't it doesn't uh, gel, then then I wouldn't do it. No, if, if I felt like I didn't have anything to offer the program, it's got to, there's got to be some enthusiasm there. For, uh, for it but to be honest that doesn't really I can't really think of things I've been I've said no to I've said no to things because I'm too busy but but I, I'm not really a lot of the approaches tend to be direct or semi-informal as well you know you you, you either sort of bump into someone or or it's all the producer you know you know the it's a small world so you know or, you know everybody knows everybody so the producers will often email you directly and and, and um, send you a script or whatever so particularly with younger people, so like I'm, the, I'm doing Hitmen at the moment, which and I knew Joe and Joe as by reputation from Gumball because I love Gumball and uh, the animated show on Cartoon Network, Adventures of Gumball, and they and they were writers on that, and so I was kind of honoured to be <laughs> to be asked to work with them because I admire that show. So 
as, as someone who's seen a lot of scripts, are there common mistakes that you see or like or like pitfalls that people often fall into that, that you would sort of advise new writers to kind of look out for in their own work? You're always wrestling with versions of the same thing often. Uh, you know, in narrative things, it's often variations of the same issue about story, you know, clear through lines for your main character, stop, main characters going passive is almost a universal on early drafts you know and then it's individual things in terms of you know things for young for, for young the, the, the one advice the, the, the most important advice to give anyone who's starting out is to if you're writing and that's your thing is to write 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 just write script after script after script and make sure you finish them uh, you know don't half finish things and each time you write a script and finish it you'll learn something more about whatever. There's no way, wor wasted work. And, you know, I think less in my own work because, you know, you, you know, for everything that you do that gets made, there's several things that don't get made. So, um, you know, but you never feel that the work is wasted on it because you've learned something new from writing that script. Do, do you have any, like, tricks or hints for getting yourself through, like, a block? So say you're, like, writing a script or you're developing a character and you sort of, and you sort of just can't get past, I don't know, like a, like a midway point or, or, or if it's, like, a sitcom pilot, if you like, just, just working your way through it. Have you got any, like, tricks or hints for getting yourself? Well, number one is the sooner you can um, commit to making your living as a writer, that's a brilliant cure for writer's block. It's the best cure I know. <laughs> There's, because there comes a, because it's not an option then if you you know literally you have to write scripts and complete scripts in order to eat <laughs> well you know or earn an income um th th that takes care of itself because you just have to you just have to do it so um i, I mean that sounds a bit facetious but it, there's truth to it i think and um i i mean i've read that advice also i think it's in there's a really good book called the war of art uh, what's the author's name? I can't remember. It's Robert something. He's a he's a novelist. Um, you know, proper. He wrote the Legend of Bagger Vance. It's a really good book about the creative process of being a writer, and that's one of his things. It's as soon as you can get into the position where it's your living, because it's it's there's it just it just creates a mindset that, um, and obviously there's a challenge in that because it's tough. It's it's a very competitive business and. And it can take time to get to that point. It obviously took me from the from the decision to I want to write to you know making a living at it. It was it was nearly a decade. So um, that's and I'm sure that's part. That's quite common. Have you uh, like when you like as you become more established in the industry? Have you found it's easier to get things made? No, no. It's not. It's not easy to get anything made. No. And and you, you know the old adage about you're only as good as last thing you did is is on one level deeply true and uh, obviously there are periods when you are it, you know it'll go like that and there's periods where there's more heat on you because of you've had a success or or done something noticeable and then it's perhaps easier to get people to read stuff um but i don't think anything gets made easily and and you know and uh, you speak to so many people uh writers who i won't name because that wouldn't be fair but um who you would not believe the conversations i've had with them from their reputations in terms of you know the difficult times they've had uh with with script after script not being uh, made or or you know struggling to write work that they felt was good or 
uh, it's a tough business. Have you, have you ever like had a script or had an idea that you were just so sure needed to be made that you ever got tempted to make it and put it on like YouTube or, or try and try and make it yourself? Not quite that route, but uh, to some extent, I mean, Ghost Stories was a bit like that. Uh, the play, I mean, not quite because we we got the commission from the lyric, but it was a sense of let's do something and let's do it ourselves. And, and there was a real uh, excitement. In well, looking at the way that you originally developed the league, it feels like you and Andy were kind of doing it in the same vein, where you, yeah. where you had, a, had a deadline. Did you, because I've heard an interview before, you said you had a deadline, you, you kind of just had to, had to have something written by that point, because otherwise there was nothing going to be on it. And then, yeah. and then it kind of just progressed from there and, and went forward. So it feels like you've got your method of making something and seeing the instant reaction from from an audience i do love i do love that process and i and what's great about you know doing doing it that way and and in you know theater on a relatively small scale in the first instance is is it's just you and it and there's no layer of executives or politics or you know any of that that was the wonderfully refreshing thing about doing ghost stories because i'd had a couple of years of uh, you know of, of various projects that had gone to, got quite close and then not happened and the deep frustration of that and then it was such a joy and a kind of revivifying joy to think oh we can just do this and we we don't have to we're not waiting for anyone's permission we just we just put it on and and we and it's just us it's just us and it and the audience and uh yeah that's that that's great did you did you think of ghost stories when, when once it had been complete and you were like well this is this has got wheels it's got legs did you think this could be a film or did someone approach you and say we should make this into a film like what what was that? no we always from when with the like the first week of writing it when we sort of hit upon the overall shape of it it felt like there was something cinematic about it um but we did make a conscious decision to park that thought whilst we focused on you know getting it as good as we could get it in its theatrical life and then and then we yeah then we had various approaches when it first transferred into the west end because obviously there was heat on it and uh so you know you do get those approaches and there was there was a there was a sort of big studio approach that came from uh, uh from america and which was very tempting but we wouldn't have been able to make it because it, it you know they would have just basically probably let us do a draft and that would have been it and then they would have owned it unfortunately that didn't work out for a, a number of reasons and um and and we had some other approaches and ultimately we sort of got to the point after a, a, a couple of years of that of realizing if we were going to if there was going to be a film that we wanted to do it the same way as we'd done the play and it was us doing it for good or ill because we you know it was felt it was so personal to us and we we felt so such a strong connection to it so so we we waited till the rights reverted to us which they did after a certain period of time in the in uh, after its west end production and then um we wrote a spec script and you know went on that journey was it was it any part because i've seen the live and i've seen the film and i know the 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 plot itself hasn't sort of changed massively between the two but were there any elements of the first script that they said we just for other budget reasons or whatever we just they're just like we wouldn't make that or we couldn't do that uh, no not once we'd written the scripts no not no no that first draft that we sent to war it no there wasn't much that we that we couldn't do i think because in our heads we we knew what scale we had to make it 
if we were going to be able to finance it. So I think we'd avoided um, putting anything uh, too grand. I suppose I have a similar question for the league. Like when you when you look back on it now, uh, were there any things that the BBC either wouldn't let you do or said we couldn't do or even would you think wouldn't get made now? Well, the whole show wouldn't get made now. <laughs> As, it, as in because of... They don't make shows like that now. Yeah, it's too expensive. Not because it's, um, I don't know, like there's something in it, that political correctness or... or... No, because, you know, if we were you know, if we were young now, we'd be tailoring it for the society that we were in as young people. So, that, so you know, and they still make edgy comedy now. No, it's more about that sketch shows are very expensive to make and, and there was still all the machinery and infrastructure of in-house production... Uh, that, that made it easier to make a show like that then and that but that but it's gone now because because obviously there's you know the, the television landscape has changed so much uh and the kind of shows that get made now that you know at least by the traditional terrestrial channels are are different so we are about halfway through the podcast and i am loving it I, it, it took me and Jeremy about a year and a half to sync our schedules and I'm over the moon this one's in the can honestly I knew it was going to be a good episode I just I just had a gut feeling about it and I adored talking to him it was another one where we kind of lost track of time which is always a great sign for an episode and I am over the moon I hope you're enjoying this I hope you're getting as much out of it as me um while I have you for a second, I just want to say that at the time of recording, the League of Gentlemen Live is back on the iPlayer. So if you wanted to go and watch that after the episode, obviously wait after the episode. Um, you can do that. If you're not from the UK, so you can't really get iPlayer or you don't have a VPN, then you can watch Ghost Stories his horror film, or the League's TV series on Netflix, which is super exciting, and we get into talking about Netflix and deals. We get into how things are bought internationally after this advert break. So without any further delays, here's your advert. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome back. What a lovely advert that was. I'm very happy that that product and or service is paying to allow this episode to stay free. I'd just like to take a minute to tell you that I am doing the Edinburgh Festival with my fourth solo show entitled Every Room Becomes a Panic Room When You Overthink Enough. It's at the sweet venues, it's in the grass market, it's at 8.35 every single day, except Wednesdays when I get rudely awoken by the dustman. There's a link in the show notes, tickets are £5. If you can come, please do. I would appreciate all support. Seriously, anything and everything is really appreciated. So if you can't make it please do bring a friend send a friend all that jazz that'd be amazing and now let's jump back into the podcast with jeremy dyson i i remember hearing an interview andy uh, where he was talking about his thoughts on fame and how he was saying that you kind of have to put that to one side and 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 not you know think of that as you know you know that might be something that comes but not have it as like your main thing that you should be aiming for and obviously uh all of you have got different levels of sort of notoriety with different areas i mean is there is there uh, are you sort of comfortable with like where you are in terms of being known in, in a wider sense or have you ever sort of thought I w- it would be nice and, it, and maybe easier to get stuff seen or, or read if I was better known because obviously when you have a name attached to something it, it tends to push things along a little, a little easier. No, I don't. I don't really have those kind of thoughts. Uh, I'm very, I'm the opposite. I'm kind of immensely grateful for whatever position and reputation I have attached to my name and you know and and people are when i work with them so i uh, uh no i'm 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 the opposite I'm, i pinch myself on a regular basis and uh, just sort of moving back to social media for a sec are there any social media channels that you particularly like and maybe look for new talent on or you try and discover people that you might want to work with no i don't that doesn't figure for me i uh no, I, 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 and I'm still like it's word of mouth, gen, more general word of mouth of people I know recommending things or uh, that I that that I would that would lead me to somebody, I guess, rather than um, I don't pay too much attention to social media. I, I'm not a not a fan. I'm on Twitter, and I I, I do it. Uh, uh, you know, obviously there's value in it in terms of when you're promoting stuff, and um, but I, uh, yeah. I try and keep it at arm's length. And in terms of online TV, because a lot of the shows you maybe script edit go on like Netflix or, or online players and things like that, and people watch those on their phone on a train or, or you know, wh- whatever, that you know, like on a computer where they're just physically nearer, like sort of the, the action, if you like. Does that change how you edit stuff? Because the sort of collective viewing experience isn't really... You know what I mean? It's, it's all changed so much. Yeah, we do. Funnily enough, we did have those conversations... Uh in the edit in ghost stories um 
you know, we were mind, most mindful of it being watched on a cinema screen, but then we did every so often remind ourselves that, um, you know, that it would have an afterlife where more people would watch it on a laptop or an iPad or even a phone. And so you just have to, you know, remind yourself, go into that mode occasionally of, uh, uh, you know, because there's the thing that, that we got from a Walter Mersch book uh, where... When he when he was editing, he would always cut out little heads, like silhouettes of people in cinema seats and stick them on the monitor to sort of give him that reminder that this is to be projected on a big screen. But you've also got to then do the opposite of that and and then take the take the cut out of the heads away and, you know, put a put a big iPhone there and remember that that's also how people are going to watch it. So did you physically do that? Did you put them on the... Uh, I think we might have done at one point. Whether it was for a joke or not, I don't know. But we, but it's useful. It's very, obviously it's very wise advice when you, because you know you're looking at a monitor and it's quite easy to for it to d- devolve into television and forget that it's going to be projected theatrically. But I think ultimately, on some level, you know, I've been because I've been watching telly for so long and watching movies for so long. You know, I started watching stuff on my own on a portable black and white twelve inch screen in my parents' bedroom. So, um, you know, I watched many films, many widescreen cinemascope films would have been terribly panned and scanned and, uh, you know, watched on a little black and white screen. So I'm, I've got no nostalgia for, uh, you know, how things used to be or, or think I think we're in a golden age because even if you're watching on an iPhone, a p- iPhone with a, it's got such a high resolution and the crispness of the image that it pisses all over VHS, which is how most stuff I, I grew up watching. You know, would have been, so I, I, I think... You know, in terms of what's clear and visible, your relationship to that screen, if the phone's down here, is pretty similar to if you're sat, you know, halfway in the stalls uh, in the view. Yeah, totally. And and you live, you don't live in London anymore, you live out in Yorkshire. And Yeah, I've lived in Yorkshire for 12 years now. Yeah, and I wondered whether that, when you when you first moved away, was a big decision, because obviously it the, the industry is so London centric, and obviously, uh, well, I don't know where the other three live, but I, uh, when you were all living down here or you are working down here, it, it must have felt so much like you know you were you were moving. Did you ever feel like you were just leaving the industry? Do you feel like you had enough reputation to do that? It was yeah, it was another scary leap in the dark. It was a bit like um, giving up the job at Waterstones. It was it was a sense of well, we'll do it and see what happens, with absolutely no idea of what it was going to be like. You know, on every level, because I was I'd, professionally, all my income pretty much had been coming from the league, and we were stopping doing the league. Um, and I had a young family, and uh, but it was just following an instinct, really. And it was, it was well, we'll do it, and we can always move back if it doesn't work. And you know, which would have been easier said than done, but nevertheless, that was the spirit that we went and did it. And then, you know, I, it, what I found is there's not, I can't think of one day when it's been a problem. It's, uh, it's, it's very easy to get back, to get down, up and down to London via Leeds. It's all, it's almost a commute. You know, it's a two-hour, a two and a bit hour train journey. Uh, and once you've, once you've factored in the cost, obviously train travel is expensive. Um, but you know, that's a choice to live up here. It's kind of swings and roundabouts because it's also cheaper to live up here than it is in London. Once you factor that in, it's very doable. And of course, we've had the following wind of technology and information technology. So, um, you know, because of doing this, you know, so me and Andy, because Andy lives in London, we we Skype, uh, write, write Skype, we're using Writer Duet all the time and have been doing for about four, four or five years. And um, uh, when even when we were editing Ghost Stories, it was brilliant. I could, I was there three days a week and here two days a week. 
and I could and I you know I had the feed from the Avid on an iPad and I was Skyping on my computer and uh, it was wonderful you know to not to to not have to you know to have the freedom to do that and to be able to mix and match and not be sat in the edit suite every even though I was there every day I didn't physically have to be there every day so but do, but do you but do you is there a part of that that makes you disconnected from the process yeah I'll always be in the room with um uh for that you know or at least when we're doing initial sessions um yes and I you know and I like to mix it most of the time I am in the room but it's different when you're writing with you know a collaborator who you're who you you've been working with for many many years and you know each other very well so well, at what stage do you like to start, like, join a project? Do you, do you sort of like to have the script finished and you can just edit it from there? Or, like, they've got a spec script and they're not sure whether it's going to go to series? Like, w- w- when's your favourite time? I don't mind because I like the journey of, you know, if you're with a, a very a script that's at a very early stage and, you know, you get it, help get it across the line or you contributed to that process, that's very pleasing and satisfying. Um, but equally, it's fun to come on board something uh, like Hitmen. This is a case in point where they've they they had six drafts already of of the of the uh, all the six episodes, so you know you're coming in quite late and uh, and that's nice as well. So it's they're, 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 yeah, they're both they're both pleasurable, yeah. And I to be and I do quite a bit of as well, you know, mentoring if I get the opportunity of uh, you know of of young people starting out if they if the approach comes in a certain way I'll uh, and that or sometimes that comes through other organizations uh, or you're working with people who are just beginning and that 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 I enjoy very much as well how does, how does the mentoring work is in like they come up to stay with you for a week or something or, or you come no I would it would be the same thing where you would do you can get a little goes a long way you know you would do a, a day in a room or um, you know maybe two days mm. I, I've noticed that you get listed a lot either as a script editor or a script supervisor and i wondered if you could say in practical terms what the difference of those two things are and that must be the vagaries of of each individual production the job's always the same okay it's basically giving your feedback on the script but without kind of changing the narrative too much or, or making sure it's still make- it depends on the thing because sometimes you'll go in and, it, and and it'll be you know there'll be quite a bit of reworking and sometimes it's closer to a polish and it depends on the on the job and uh, you know at what stage they're at when they come to you and what they're looking for as well. And and if we can quickly talk about like the the return of the league, if you like the the live the most recent live show, how, how was that as a as a was it a case of you've always kind of wanted to go back to it or like someone approached you and said we think there's a tour here and like did you ever worry that maybe the audience might not want to come and see it again? Like oh yeah, <laughs> yeah we completely worried about that. Uh, or not worried about it, but we didn't know. I mean, you know, in terms of doing the TV specials, that was something we'd been been in the air for a few years because we we were missing each other, and we you know we kept having dinners and saying, "Shall we do something?" But of course, everybody was so busy with their individual projects that um, it was it was a sort of semi pipe dream. And then it just so happened that there was a sort of window uh, in the middle of last year, uh, a year before, I mean, two thousand sixteen, and everybody was coming off something and and it was like oh should we should we do it now because otherwise we'll never do it and fortunately you know the bbc wanted it and and so they didn't mess around and they sort of struck while the iron was hot and so it all happened quite quickly we wrote it quite quickly and it was made quite quickly and so so it was it was in the gap between finishing ghost stories and ghost stories coming out we went from nothing with the league to writing it, making it, it being broadcast, uh, you know, in a period of six months. So it was, that was great. 
And then, you know, once we'd come back together, we thought, well, it would make sense to do a tour now because we always enjoyed it. It was so much fun to to, to do those tours. And um, so we just, and you know, and the promoter had been in touch and said, well, if you want to do it, we, you know, we're, we're very happy to do it. So there was no great pressure. It was, it was, well, let's, let's put it on sale and see. But we didn't know. We didn't know. Had you all been writing stuff or like? No, 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 no. No, we just sort of made the commitment to do it and then with the knowledge that we would then write the show. Okay. No, I just I just wonder whether like you'd ever like when you when you left the league, if you like, or finished. Oh, no, no, we hadn't thought about it. that was the lovely thing. We you literally hadn't thought about it from a creative point of view for, you know, 12 years uh, or whatever it was. And, um, you know, the last thing we did was end of 2005, which was the last live show. And we picked up again 2016, wasn't it? So it was, uh, no, 2017. So it was, uh, yeah, 12 years. Yeah, And that the lovely thing was, because of that, it, as I've said elsewhere, it was like turning on a tap. You know, it was just, it just poured out because it had been sat there in our collective unconscious. And, uh, and it was, and because you'd been away from the characters for that length of time, but we knew them all very well, it was just an absolute delight to sit there, well, what's Les done now? You know what's happened at the Dentons, what's uh, and just work your way through them. And when and when you're between projects and things, or even like when you are on a project, are you always writing other ideas as well, or are you so like in a project that you that you kind of don't want to fo- don't want to sort of split your focus? No, I've got about six things going on at any one time, so which is quite again quite usual. I would have thought for someone in my position, as in six scripts that you're always working on, or. Yeah, some more between. I'm on average between four and six scripts at various stages of. Because I've started on taking doing episodes of other people's shows as well, which I really enjoy. So I did. I've just done a Killing Eve, uh, second series of Killing Eve, done an episode of that, and and I'm just doing an episode of a show called The Irregulars for Netflix, uh, and that's I'm enjoying that doing it as a, as a kind of new thing. Would you would you write them for spec or would you just be writing them for fun? As in, like, oh, I've done a series of Killing Eve. I'll, I've got this idea for a, uh, a show. I might just write it and see if they want it. For if there's a series three, like how how would? Oh no no no, those were approaches. No no, they weren't. They were, I didn't go in. I didn't go in speculative. They came. They said they asked approach me. You still do speculative stuff at all? Yes, but my own projects. Yeah. Okay. I, and I was going to ask, like, what what's sort of next for you? I mean, I think I heard that Ghost Stories is coming back to London, but I presume that's going to be Andy and not you're not obviously in that. So. Yeah, well, it's not, and it's a new cast. Oh, really? So, okay. Yeah, so that's uh, it's a new production. So that's that's going on at Lyric at the end of March. That starts. That's where it began at the Lyric, and uh, in Hammersmith, uh, me and Andy are in the midst of writing a, a, a film script as a as a, a follow up to Ghost Stories, not a sequel, but another another uh, film for us. Hopefully, do. Um, and then I've got various script film scripts of my own that I've that are in various stages of um, drafts. Uh, I've got a series, so again, various series that are various various stages of development um, at uh, different uh, broadcasters. So it's uh, it's quite a full plate at the moment. Let's say you've got six let's six plates spinning. Is it a case of you? more want to go with the one that you have the most energy for and you are most creatively fulfilled by or is it a case of you sometimes have to park that and go with the one that someone's commissioning and you know saying we'll pay you to do like how how do you balance those things well you have to be very pragmatic but at the same time uh, i really try and focus as exclusively as i can on doing things that i have maximum enthusiasm for so 
so I tried not to take on anything that I don't have maximum enthusiasm for. Um, and obviously, if it's something that I'm develop, developing myself from scratch, then you know that's built into it. Um, but if it's a show that someone else has approached me about, I would have to feel that kind of enthusiasm to 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 towards that show to want to take it on because otherwise I don't think it would work out very well you know so I, I actually put quite a lot of uh, energy into thinking about what work to do and and think, trying to think ahead and look ahead and you know you, you've got all the the chance anyone who does does this who, who makes their living as a as a freelance writer effectively you know there's a challenge built into that in terms of cash flow and all of <laughs> running a business and all of that um and and it's definitely but but it's a great game so I, you know i kind of like that side of it as much almost as much as the writing um the kind of the strategy of it of running the business as it were and 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 i do I and mean, yes a lot of thought goes into what am i going to do yeah yes yeah, so, so how far ahead do you have to plan for yourself like because obviously there's time that it's going to take to make so, so that even if a script gets picked up you know that it might be a year before it even comes out or even starts in production so how, how far ahead do you have to think well you know in terms of there's a difference between things being made and scripts being commissioned if, if they are commissions well you're sort of looking nine months to a year ahead in terms of having work you know i, I would start to feel uncomfortable if i you know, if, if 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 I didn't have sort of nine months to a year's worth of work in front of me, um, uh, but in terms of things being made, of course, you've no idea what's going to get made. All you know is only a fraction of what you're working on will get made. You just don't know which fraction. And are, and are there any sort of like projects that you're working on at the moment that you're like speculatively or even you know been asked to make that you're thinking, okay, well, I've, I've, that's going to be the nine month down the line thing that I've got to work on like how, how's that working for you well again you have to be very adaptable and flexible because because decisions can come uh, if you know if you get a green light it can, can some, sometimes come unexpectedly and quite quickly so uh, uh Bitch is a show I did a few years ago at, with Tiger for Sky that was like that where we did we did a pilot episode and um and then almost straight away they said right let me want six and 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 because I was directing it as well, I had to clear the decks unexpectedly for that because obviously it was a joyful thing to do, so I wanted to do it. Um, so, yeah, you have to be prepared to do that. But there's an understanding within the industry that everybody knows that if you get a green light, that you have to go. So, so you know, if whatever else you're working on will... And, uh, you know, most working writers will have a version of that and, uh, and you understand, you know, that... Um, if that happens, why that's happened. Putting words in your mouth, very much your job is 50% show, 50% business, if you like. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it might be, it might be 60, 40, but, and it might fluctuate more one way than the other. I mean, you know, it's probably 60 in terms of hours spent or more attention. You know, you are most of the time you are writing or, or creating or what have you, but, but it's always on your mind, you know, and so it's part of every day is, and I've, I've definitely refined my process of how to do it over the past, you know, 12 years of doing it, because it, it didn't, it took care of itself during the years of the league to, to some extent, so it was learning how to do it began for me post-league. Yeah, and, and did having sort of an agent mediate that anxiety? 
Well, an agent doesn't really get you work. You have to get you work. You know, an agent does your deals for you. Uh, I mean, you know, I suppose equally, if you went to your agent and said, "Oh, I, you know, I need some work," they would uh, they would be helpful in in putting the feelers out. I'm sure, but unfortunately, um, that's that's far not how it's been for me. So, um, uh, you know. It doesn't. It's more about it. You, don't, you do it yourself. You know. I like to self-start on things. Are there any skills that you wish you had, either from members of the league or or just other people that you've met that you you're working towards? And how are you doing that? Uh, I'm always trying to refine my skills as a as a writer. So that's something I do quite consciously and and sort of study and read and uh, and do online. There's so many, there's so much great online uh, teaching material as well now. So I, like the masterclass website's brilliant and you know fantastic things on it. So uh, I really like doing that. And Andy likes doing that as well. So we often share and swap things. And likewise with the directing, obviously that's newer and same thing. Lots of sort of studying and reading and watching films and talking about them with Andy and uh, or and and you know and doing doing quite a bit of proper work proper sort of studying work on that side of it which i love and then you're always sort of soaking stuff up from everybody you work with you know so so that's the that's what i do like trying to say yes to things so if someone asks me to do something i do like i always my starting point is always is always yes and then unless something comes up that makes me say no and i found from doing that so much has flowed you know and you'll you know sometimes you'll do a job and even though the job hasn't gone the way you wanted you'll you'll take one bit of knowledge away that's just a gold dust uh you know that then you feed off for years to come uh, that you wouldn't have got if you hadn't done the job so doing is key and being active and and stretching always being always being slightly you know your reach slightly exceeding your grasp i think that's really important not getting comfortable you know not repeating yourself trying to develop new you develop what skills you have and just keep reaching and and stretching out so i you know i wasn't a natural I had sort of had to learn long form script writing because I was using, you know, I'd learned, I'd come learned writing sketches and, and albeit longer narrative sketches that ran over series, but then having to take on feature script or, or you know, hour long scripts or whatever, that was a new thing to learn how to do. So, what do you think is the biggest mistake you've ever made and how did you overcome it? Uh, Self doubt, uh, you know, when I was younger, doubting my abilities and, and you know, being not daring to do the thing that I've done and or and then along the way little versions of that you know sort of thinking the the negative self-talk uh, you know you talked about imposter syndrome earlier which didn't apply for the league but that's much harder to deal with when you're on your own so it does you know those demons do gnaw at you when you're working on your own uh, as any writer will. or any creative anybody who does anything creative will have that and uh, I think a big part of one's career and doing it as a as you're living is learning to wrestle those angel stroke demons and uh, everybody has their own version of them uh, and me and Mark and Andy are forever swapping stories about people it's not I can't tell the stories but so, but it's amazing where you will find that everywhere you know from p- yeah. people who pra- practice at the highest possible level have it's a universal who, who do you think is the most underrated person in the industry either in front of or behind the camera I can think of films or individual programs and or things that might be underrated I, I'm not sure about individuals because the, it's, a, it's a small industry people talk and the goodwill out so uh, I mean you know public esteem might be a different thing but in terms of um, industry I, I wouldn't I wouldn't there's no one person that springs to mind of uh, you know an underrated 
talent. What do you think is the biggest problem in the industry and how would you solve it? Playing safe, you know, commissioners and broadcasters not taking enough risks generally. Uh, and that's a constant. It was ever thus. And you understand why that is. But one, you know, I think we're in a great time at the moment because the, the streaming services have really shaken things up. And they're remarkably bold with their commissioning, um, you know, partly because they seem to have bottom, Netflix seems to have a bottomless piece of money. Uh, but they've, you know, really bold, wonderful programmes. And, and hopefully that will have a trickle down effect, uh, you know, in terms of. Uh, you know, broadcasters here being seeing the rewards of being courageous and commissioning things that are original. Because generally, you know, broadcasters love original groundbreaking things after they've been successful, but they tend to be very nervous about them in advance because they don't look like they will be by definition. You know, they look too weird or strange or different. But, uh, you know, and, and, and everybody knows that, but it's very hard to put into practice. They, they, they want to be the one that discovered it, but they don't want to be the one that took the risk on it. Yeah, they won't. It might, it's not a conscious thing. It's just kind of built into the process of doing it because it's very expensive to make television and the stakes are always high. And, you know, it's always it's always going to be easier to go for a thing that feels like it, it's going to be successful. But, you know, the, the often the things that we cherish the most don't look and feel like that. Mm. Um, last question. What bit of advice have you most cherished over your career it's not quite advice the principle is perhaps there of when when me and andy took uh, went to, to, to speak to sean holmes who was running the lyric at the time about ghost stories the play he um it, he programmed it without it being written he he um he he had faith in us he had such faith in us that we would deliver it that he he put it in the program without seeing a script, and that's that was so much the opposite of you know every other aspect of the industry, that it was like getting a shot of you know it was like a defibril defibrillator in terms of uh, reviving my own um, creative spirit to have uh, to see that act of faith from somebody else in us. So there's not much that's not that's not much useful to anybody else but uh, suffice to say that you know those things come in your career and when they do you know they don't happen often but when they do they are to be cherished and savored and you can get a lot from them then which you then take forward yeah, uh, you know well thank you very much for taking part that's that's great thanks Simon that was Jeremy I love that pod but it is not over yet Jeremy and I carried on emailing for maybe a week or two after we'd done this episode and then it kind of just went blank for a week and then out of the blue he emailed me and the email said and I quote can I come back on there are loads of stories about failure and the power of your attitude and luck in this industry that I'd love to talk about now not wanting to miss out on some absolute gold I said sure what follows is the final bit of the podcast. This was originally a Patreon exclusive and uh, I decided to put it back in this episode so that everyone could enjoy it. I thought a lot of people would get a lot out of it. I personally adore this story and this message that he has about your attitude and about the way that you deal with rejection. I think it really sums up a lot of things that got my head on straight about certain things going into Edinburgh. And I figured a lot of other people are going into Edinburgh and there's going to be a lot of failures and there's going to be a lot of disappointments, but there's also going to be a lot of uh, 
opportunities to keep your attitude in a positive mental state for the fringe so I thought, I thought it's definitely worth including um, if you would like to become a patron and get this sort of content exclusively ahead of time before anyone else and sometimes it will only be patron exclusive so you will get everything that I make uh, in relation to this podcast at least um, from one dollar an episode please do click the link in the show notes and join up join our ever-growing list of patrons who support the podcast and keep it going just want to give a quick shout out to all of our current patrons here are the people that are keeping this podcast going and keeping the lights on at my house simon warner mike sheldon janice havies nick wilde chris o'leary dave natris paul robinson dara fitzpatrick ben jennings michael mooch john paul stevenson and banksy banks those legends are the people that are keeping the lights on you can join them please do from one dollar I'd massively appreciate it. I highly recommend you zone in for this next bit because I, f- I think it's easily one of my favourite stories and nuggets of wisdom that I've ever put out on a podcast. Thanks for listening. Let's jump back in. Yeah. Um, okay. Well. Uh, okay. Well, I'll, <clears throat> I'll reread it to myself just because because this is a, this is always a weird one for me is that whenever I'm doing an interview with someone, I tend to listen to a lot of their previous interviews, a lot of their previous podcasts, just so that I know. You know, like what they've said before, questions that I would ask, you know, leading off from those things. So I try not to just make, you know, another episode of something else they've already done. Um, And this, obviously, every time a guest comes back on and we talk about stuff, is very much them knowing what's going to happen and me sort of going, well, okay, I'll probably have something to ask in a minute. But you you obviously, um, yeah, so you were talking about, um, we were chatting back and forth on on email and you were saying uh, you want to talk more about the importance of failure yeah how that's dealt with and uh the best advice uh, hang on did you write the best advice you've ever been given or the best advice you've uh it was failure it, and it was a thing about the uh, what the, the charlie higson story is twofold it's about courage and it's also about I- encouragement um you know it's kind of it's, it's both from both perspectives of receiving and giving let's go uh so where do you want to where do you want to start first well um so another thing that uh, that I wanted to talk about briefly was the importance of failure, um, because failure is so bound up in any creative process, and it's very very easy to just think failure equals bad, you know. And obviously, on an emotional level, that's how you feel every time you get something gets rejected or something doesn't get green lit or you know, but you get a bad set of notes or whatever, it's it's obviously bound up in the process because it wouldn't be possible to do it otherwise. And yet, I, I re- it's taken me a long time to realise this, but I really kind of came to a visceral realisation last year when we were promoting Ghost Stories. It was me and Andy talking about it together that not only is failure a necessity... It's actually a, a hugely valuable, hugely positive thing because it is because it provides so many opportunities. And how we came to realize this was on ghost stories. If I tell this story, I think it illustrates the point. Um, so, you know, to get the film green lit, we had to go through many processes as is usual from, you know, scripts, revised scripts, uh, attaching cast, um, all of those things. 
and you know we we started off developing it with one uh, com- uh, film may uh, f- uh, produce producers with film four via warp and then uh, we parted ways with film four and uh, you know that was kind of feels like failure number one then we went to the bfi uh, and the bfi paid for us to do a taster essentially to shoot a reel and uh, you know partly i think because we were first time feature directors and partly because there were two of us and it was you know to answer questions about how we would work and whether we were up to it and so we shot that reel and then basically they they watched the reel and um decided that they didn't want to carry on with it uh you know again a not uncommon occurrence and um and, and of course that was absolutely devastating at that point for me and Andy because we've been developing the film for two years you know from from when we started writing the spec script and all the points we'd got to up until then and warp I think were struggling at that point they were feeling they were slightly running out of steam with well really where else can we go with it so it really felt like proper failure it felt like you know there was certainly a, a few days where it felt that was it and that was going to be the end of the idea of ghost stories the film and and then me and Andy you know we were on the phone there was a few things that happened one was uh, me and Andy sort of talking to each other and sort of like just unable to accept that it could end there and then sort of from out of the blue I got a call from my brother who's not in the industry at all he, was, he works uh, in finance I mean in, in banking but he he was asking how it was going and um, and I was tell I told him what had happened and he just happened to say that he'd started going to this investment club like a sort of Dragon's Den thing almost for fun uh that's how different he is to me and um (laughs) and someone there was involved in film financing uh, or had been in the past and would he like to set up a meeting with him and with and warp and um so you know in, in absence of anything else well why not there was absolutely nothing to lose and so we went along to this meeting uh, my brother came and Andy and um, and Robin came from Warp and what was really interesting was it although although we didn't tangibly end up doing anything with that guy it just sort of unlocked the next stage because this guy was an outside eye on the whole process and uh, he was sort of able to say he was able to sort of summarize where we were which was look you've got this property which has been you know, successful in the West End and internationally. You've got an, an international star attached, because we did have Martin attached at that point. Why can't you get this financed? And just to have someone else say that seemed to just be enough to lift the whole thing again. And it, it, it shifted Warp's perception in terms of um, you know, where else they could go, and that's... And that's how we. That was the beginning of how we ended up with Lionsgate uh, as our as our producing partners uh, and distributors. And then, but the crucial thing was also out of that was me and Andy resolved. Right, we rolled up our sleeves and we said, right, we are going to learn. We're going to take full responsibility for this. We're we're going to accept 
that although we were sort of happy with the taster tape, that we, the taster reel that we shot, um, obviously something didn't work because the BFI didn't want to make it after seeing it. That They were looking for an answer and they got an answer, which was a negative. So something didn't work there, even though we hadn't, that wasn't our feeling at the time. So we're going to be hugely forensic. We're going to look at what we feel didn't work in that reel and about how we went about it. And we're going to um, look at the script again and be hugely forensic with the script. And uh, like what, you know, what, what could we do differently? And I can remember thinking, it was the first time I thought, it. look, I, you know, I have this other life as a script editor. I'm going to go through the script with, a script edit, with my script editor's hat on, which is a hard thing to do with your own work. Um, but nevertheless, I'm going to do that as an exercise and see what happens. And so all of those things t- together, you know, we did, we had a, we had a, we really shifted some stuff in the script. We were able to find things that we could see looking at it that way could be improved. And we, the the big thing was that we looked at the taster reel again and the, the, the crucial thing is we hadn't really landed the, a key scare in it that the thing ended on. And, you know, in our heart of hearts, when we looked at it in the face, we knew that. We knew we'd slightly muffed it. It ended on a sort of jump scare, but it was it fell between two stools and, you know, it didn't really work as a moment. And there are all kinds of reasons why that was the case. You could rationalise it. You know, we didn't have any money. We didn't have any prep time. It was, you know, you had, you had to shoot it really quickly. But nevertheless, you could see that it didn't work. So we then, what we did then was we we modelled every, every single scare that was written into the script. And we found a model for it in some of our favourite other movies. So that, when we went so it was like a technical thing so that when we went into to shoot each of those scares you know when we when we finally got greenlit and made the movie um it was we'd been really rigorous about okay we know we we know that if we do this this and this these will at least work technically because it's quite it's quite a technical business to to get that 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 reaction from a jump scare and so this was the thing me and Andy realised was you could quite easily imagine a world where the BFI, had they been feeling more benevolent or wanted to give us the benefit of the doubt or whatever, thought, that, well, OK, it's OK, that test reel, they'll, they'll probably rise up to the challenge. Let's go ahead and green light it. You know, there's certainly you, you can you know hypothesise a world in which that happened rather than them passing on it. If that had been the case, we wouldn't have done any of that work. We'd have shot the draft of the script that we had. We would have been, you know, on cloud nine thinking we were the bee's knees. And we would not have done that that extra hard, you know, pass on the script. And it was from the humiliation of the thing, having the pain of the humiliation of, of them passing, that we did that really ultra forensic work on both on the script and on how those scares were going to land which meant that the film was stronger than had we shot the BFI version of it. And and then we and so me and Andy realised as we were talking about this, well God, you know, that's because we failed. If we if we if we hadn't failed, we wouldn't that none of that would have happened and 
who knows? But you can certainly imagine the world where you would have made a weaker film. Well, no, I was going to say, you, 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 if you hadn't have failed, you would have made the film because the failure was being told you wouldn't, they wouldn't make it. Yes. So the film was going to get made. If the film had got made, would you... I mean, it's a hypothetical thing, but based on where the script went and, and the developments in how you... And I, I don't want to say it like this, but I'm going to say it like this and you can rephrase it if you want. Yeah, yeah. Um, how you took the structure or you took the elements from other films you liked to improve your own. Mm. Uh, how, w- would you have said the film wouldn't have been as good if they had just... Yeah, because human nature being what it is, you don't do unnecessary work. Or it takes a lot to motivate you to do unnecessary work. Always, always easier to believe you're great. And the, and the, and the, you know, the temptations to, to believe that are always there, you know. I tell you the most interesting thing for me about this is, and I had a discussion with a friend a couple of days ago about this exact thing, mm. is whose opinion do you take on board? Because as we talked about in, in the original pod, you know, Everyone's got an opinion on Twitter when you put something out on the internet, or I'm sure when Ghost Stories went live on Netflix, you got a load of tweets from people that loved it, maybe people that hated it. You know, there would have been more feedback there than you could probably even deal with. So this person who your brother happened to meet, Mm. who happened to do film finance in in some capacity... I, I assume from what you said, they worked at Lionsgate. Oh, no, it wasn't. That's the thing. There was no actual connection between them and what actually happened. I think they did put an offer in, uh, but, but but several other companies did as well. So we didn't end up going with them. But it was rather, it was just that experience that just was enough to lift the thing back onto the rails of having someone, um, you know, with me and with, with Warp sat there you know, it just—it was just enough to. We were so despondent to sort of kick us up out of our despondency of, of like, come on, get your act together, pick yourself up, and get on with it. Because it, you know, it's a choice. It's a choice to stop. Mm. Yeah, and as you said, I, I think we spoke about before. As you said, you don't ever give up on a project; you just shelf it. Yeah, and I, as anyone, any writer, working writer will know, and not just writers, producers, directors, whoever. You know, the story of things that get made nine times out of ten. It's been a 10-year struggle or, or equivalent to get it made. You know, I'm working on... I'm doing an episode of Tom Bidwell's show, uh, The Irregulars, at the moment. Sorry about it. You'll have to edit out that ping, sorry. And, uh, and it was 13 years from when he was first started developing that to, uh, you know, to, I'm sure, as I'm sure he won't mind me sharing with you. You know, and that's not uncommon, um, and particularly in the world of film, you know. What I find is, is you also mentioned that having Martin Freeman attached to it helped mm. in terms of that. If the film, and, and this is just a technical question from someone who's never made a film and never done something like that, mm. but if you don't have a contract to make the film or you don't have a budget or anything like that, how does how is he involved? Like, is it a case of he's basically said, I will do it if you if I'm free and if it's got yeah, budget? Yeah, it's, it's a thing. There's a, there's a thing. It's called a letter of intent or something like that. So it's, oh. yes, it's an all things being equal. I will do this film, you know. So it's not contractually binding, but it's, a, it's there is a letter and it's, you know, it's, it's more than just a kind of wish or an aspiration. It's somebody saying that, that you know, if this film gets greenlit and I am available... And you can make it work. I will, I will do it. Yeah, and that's quite common, I think, in terms of um, movies in that situation of, you know, of what will happen. Were there any other stories or points that you wanted? Well, so that that was the failure one, and obviously that that story is 
is almost archetypal because you know I could then point to several many many other things be individual sketches in the league or other moments in one's career that really followed that pattern but I I just think it's really good thing to know that one must embrace failure and almost if it doesn't sound masochistic hope for it there's another thing I do remember you know when we were I remember when we were when we'd written the script for the league film for the for apocalypse and we sent it to various people to read uh, and there was some you know very well known and very well respected comedy person that that, that 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 sent it back and said it's wonderful and that was the most use, useless set of notes that you'd ever received <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> of course it was brilliant at the time you were delighted to have someone tell you that but after the event you realized there was no utility in being told that it was wonderful but i, I think this leans back into what you said before you said uh that there's a there's a uh, i'm trying to quote back you to you and i'm going to do it badly because i haven't listened to the episode for a while so so let's it was something like you said there's there's something great about a uh, working with someone because they can actively tell you like like you said it's really hard to edit your own stuff that's right yeah you've got the editing the editing is built in if you're collaborating yeah exactly and and i i was talking to someone it was the same conversation the other day with this with this other comedian where i said i don't like failing but i do love failing and they didn't understand what i was saying and and basically what i was saying is i about three out of every four projects i start I end up failing, but I learn something from it. And I always shelf it and I come back to it. But they were like, but surely that was just a big waste of time. And I was like, it can't be if I learn from it. Like, it, it doesn't... That's right. And, I, you know, I've read this advice from so many places. And, and But you have to live it before you internalise it. But there was yes. one, one um, it was, you know, leading Hollywood screenwriter. And he said, you know, he does, he does everything on spec. He's got to that position where he can do that. And, and the, his process is he writes a draft... And he puts it away for a year and he, he doesn't look at it for a year because by leaving it for a year, he's able to see it with such fresh eyes when he reads back that it just makes editing it in so much easier because stuff falls away rather than if you're going back to it after two or three weeks. And you think, God, what a wonderful thing to be able to work like that. You know, I, I would say, and, and, I, and I was, that's the other thing I was reflecting as well was when I very first started writing when I, I i don't think we talked about it but I, you know I, my, my first thing was really writing short stories we did talk about it and um you know and the glory and wonderful thing about when you first start is you have that kind of luxury you know you can you can do that and it's only once it starts becoming your living and you're bound by all those mechanics that you're not when you're first starting that it becomes much harder to do to do that and you have to kind of work out ways to sort of reclaim that mo, I think. Um, Without massaging your ego too much here, and I'm just wondering how you, you know, mm. do you think the reason that you're uh, con- pretty, con- as as you put it, like you're very consistently employed, you you have lots of op- well, you have opportunities coming your way that you want to work on and excite you, and and you're a known script editor and writer within the industry. Do you think the reason for that? I'm trying to think of a way of phrasing this which doesn't come off as probably insulting as it will do. <laughs> Just say it. You can always edit it out. Yeah, no, but you'll know I've said it. <laughs> I, don't <laughs> That's mind. The I don't mind. I, I can add it in later if I was going to be insulting. <laughs> no, my, my question was going to be, do you think being... So like Graham Linehan, for example, yes. is a f- very famous writer. Yes. And I imagine he's got a base of people that just kind of see his name 
and kind of are going to immediately take to whatever he's done yeah. because of nostalgia of Father's head or, or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering whether you not being necessarily as famously known, which is another thing we talked about, yeah, yeah. has helped you kind of get better notes, get get better at taking rejection because it's not as public and it's it's kind of something that you can take time over and you have sort of more ability to to develop these skills kind of behind the scenes a bit more maybe i mean the interesting thing when i was thinking about it and i was thinking about it only today you know one of the glories of that first starting out phase is the purity of it nobody knows you and you've got no sort of expectations about what you're doing and it is just you and the work so you know maybe there are advantages to that people have less preconceptions about uh, what it is that you do you know it's hard for me to know really because obviously i only know the water the the you know the water that i swim in so it's hard really to be able to see it from outside of that position I mean, because I, because I suppose what, well, you know, whatever p- profile I have, I was known as a colla- it was as a collaborator. You know, it was part of a um, something else. And indeed, you know, the things I've done outside it have, that I'm known for have all been collaborations as well. Maybe that changes the way of the you know people that you work with relate to you. Possibly, maybe it makes it more makes you able to be more fluid. You know, maybe that's one of the reasons I enjoy collaborating because I like being fluid. I like kind of putting on. I certainly hate being bored, and I hate um, the idea of repeating myself. So, I, one of the things I have really enjoyed in my career is 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 doing such different things and working with such different collaborators. So, you know, maybe you pay a price in terms of, you know, you could like the career. If I envied anyone's career, it would be Hitchcock's because he was a brand. Uh, you know, and and not just a brand within the industry, but internationally. But you know, he worked bloody hard to make that the case, though, and that was uh, from the get go. But uh, and I, and I sort of think, well, that must be nice because because you're known for being brilliant at, at one thing, and I sort of seem to have been the opposite of that um, in terms of having hopped from thing to thing in a sort of mercurial way. And yet, you know, that's just how it's unfolded. And it's true that a, a lot of it seems to be a choice. Uh, but it's, you know, we are not transparent to ourselves. Uh, we, it, we're, it's, it's all quite mysterious. Uh, that's why when I was saying, when we were talking before, the thing I'm grateful for is that, uh, is that it works. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm able to do it and, 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 and earn a, you know, earn a good living at it. So um, that seems to be the most important thing. Yeah, I had I had one question I wanted to ask you based on your email. Yeah, I specifically didn't email it to you, even though I, I now I'm slight, slightly regretting not doing that because I don't know whether you'd have to think about the answer. But in the email, you were talking about the the value of failing and 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 you know obviously trying to uh, grow from the failure rather than letting it defeat you. Yeah, and I wondered whether you could think of an example of something that went through quickly that you look back on that you would have now liked to not have failed but had more barriers so that you so that you think you like you think now actually I could have put more work into that or I could have changed that or or I now I would have invested more time in how the mechanics of that work there's loads of things that that, that you know that have been in development 
that where various stages of the process have had to go too quickly for my liking and I haven't been able to put in the thinking time and you know and then it's not been a surprise to me when those things haven't been green lit but but the the nice thing about that is that those things are all still there or pretty much all of them are apart from the odd one or two where it's someone else's IP so you know they haven't gone away and that, that you have the opportunity to to go back and do that in terms of things that have been made the only thing that I can say that of is that uh, is a play I did um, after Ghost Stories, which is an adaptation of of Roald Dahl short story, adult short stories, which I did for the lyric the year after, and that that was frustrating because we had a very compressed timescale to do it in, and then it was weirdly opened completely the wrong way around, where normally you would you know you would open something and and preview it out of town and then bring it in, and then because of the vagaries of the lyrics schedule insanely the opposite was the case it was opened at the lyric and so it had its press night you know without any we had a preview week but we didn't have weeks to run it in and as a new play that was really tough and um and so frustratingly by the time the thing had finished its run which it did in newcastle it was a much better show than it was when it opened in london but you know which is not the normal way of these things and so that was frustrating and that's that's about the only thing i think of of things that have been you know gone into production where i would like to have got been able to go back and have much more time to do it you know because sometimes things can go quickly and it's it's works to their favor like the league specials uh, uh you know in 2017 they, they happened very quickly and it didn't harm them at all um Tychobitch's first series happened very quickly and that uh, was a good thing so it's you know it's not all it's, it's oceans of time is not automatically a good thing you know sometimes having to act quickly can be to something's benefit but generally speaking you know i think the thing about that ghost stories tale you know of the of how the failure made it better it wasn't just that it was a staggered process and there was time it was that you had that emotional motivation to do that extra work you know because you could have had lots of time and not had the failure and you wouldn't have done that extra work and i suppose at the time as well given that and i might be wrong but you didn't have other projects on the go it was it was kind of the the thing that you were trying to get yeah you were putting pretty much putting everything into getting it going yeah so that's how you know you were really feeling it yeah so in some ways you you couldn't no, you couldn't, but you couldn't let it go because, you know, where what work were you going to find quickly that would start to pay for itself, as it were? Yeah, I mean, I think I was doing... Uh, I was doing Tracy Ullman at the time. You know, there were other things threaded through it because it wasn't bringing any money, so there had to be. Uh, you know, literally, it didn't bring... I mean, that's the other thing when you're developing a film. There is, there's very little money up front, you know. We had a bit of script money, but that was all. There was no money for the you know, for that shooting the taster tape or anything. So it was all unpaid. So, but yes, I, but I never, time-wise, I wasn't able to say, take on a big other script because um, because it was demanding too much, you know, of, um, uh, in order to do it well, of, of our undivided attention, um, which is one of the conundrums of, where, you know, when you're in movies, yeah, I think is how you, it's how you, how you finance it. What I'm, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, what I'm hearing from this is, each time you've done a project, so like a TV project or a script project, you've you've realised that a failure is a good thing, or, or can be, and b not all the time, obviously, and b um, each time you've done one, you've learnt more about how much time to invest 
like not just in the script as in looking externally to it as in the mechanics of it and how it works and by um, by the virtue of the fact that it was your first feature film mm. you were learning those things again like you did with tv because it was a whole different industry would that be that's absolutely right yeah and in fact you know there was loads i didn't learn until after we'd finished it was only it was like because the the finishing process was so extended just you know because it gets so finickety in the very final stages when you're ironing out all the technical difficulties and it is and it's your responsibility to do it you know just things like the um the dcp getting made the thing that they project it off in the cinemas you know that took weeks because we keep tapping there was some kept being some tiny little thing wrong with it and you each time you had to go back and then review it they had to remake it and uh, and you know and all of it was meant i couldn't really start another new project uh, and i really you know and, I, and then i realized oh god well you know it eats up gobbles up money and you realize that there's not <laughs> you know that, that what you got paid for doing the film doesn't actually quite cover the time that it takes to make to finish the thing off and that was i hadn't realized that and so you know i now know please god we do another one that you, you need to be well capitalized going in and i did i don't know if i mentioned this last i did see a brilliant interview with the cohen brothers where which they and they which they don't often do it was online somewhere and they were saying you know not 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 being not even really fully joking that their filmmaking career was a lost leader for their script writing business <laughs> and um because the films don't make money you know, not in in any in any real sense because of the way they do them. Everyone's doing things for scale, and they're not ma- mega budget films. Obviously, they they have occasional big box office successes that must contribute. But gen- they were being serious, and they were saying, you know, the way it works is that they they have this other life as script doctors and and writers for hire, writing things for the studio, most of which never gets made. You know, where they'll come in and uh, rewrite a project, often page one, uh, and you know, for which they're very well paid. And that enables them to make the films in the way that they want to make the film. And, you know, you, you would never think that. You would never think that in a million years that, that, that that's how they do it. But of course, why not? What, you know, what make, they're not, they're not Superman. <laughs> they've all, and it was really interesting and refreshing to hear that interview. And to sort of, it's a bit like doing this. That's the value of doing these things, of sharing this arcane knowledge. We, we, everyone needs to share this information because nobody talks about that. How, how on earth do you make make it pay no i well uh, i don't know if you listen to it i mean i i often get compared to the comedians comedian podcast yeah, 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 uh, yeah, which, yeah. oh actually you've done that yeah you have done that because i listened to that one again before i did your interview and i i often get compared to that one except i remember when i when i was starting this one Stu was starting that one and we actually met because we were having a chat about podcasts in general and i said to him you know, because I think he'd made like five episodes and I said to him, I'm going to be doing what you do mixed with what, do you know Tim Ferriss? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was going to be, I'm going to be doing somewhere in between the two of you, which is essentially discussing how the thing got made and how you can get the thing made and the, the legit, the sort of nitty gritty of it. And he said, and I said to him, are you going to be asking those questions? Because I don't want to make a thing that you're already making. And he went, doesn't interest me. I'm not going to do it and stuff. Um, so that means a lot that you are. Uh, that, that, yeah, this has kind of uh, been fun for you. And, and I, I tell you something, when we're talking about time, something that I had to remind someone the other day, they were looking at making a podcast. I said, and they said to me, I've got a deadline. I'm going to have the first episode out on the 1st of Feb. And what I had to remind them was, um, you've never made an episode before. You don't know what goes into it. It's good to have a deadline. But if you miss that deadline, you've got to remember that the first time you've done something, you shouldn't beat yourself up 
if you if you don't know how long it takes to do the thing. Do you know what I mean? Because it's it's all new to you. It's it's like I get the deadline is a nice sort of placeholder, but it's it's hard to to beat yourself up for not knowing a skill that no one's telling you how to do. Absolutely, yeah. And and to me, script writing is in particular is all that. Because each time you do something, you discover another thing that you don't know. Uh, you know, and and I love. There's a quote from Picasso which I love, where he says that he he do, he does things he doesn't know how to do, because that's how he learns how to do them. And you know, and and that's why he did all that. You know, that breadth of stuff of ceramics and you know and, and, and sculpture and and you know as well as painting and drawing. And he was always trying to. And that, that's I suppose that's another thing of my quicksilver thing of always trying to do different things there's something in me that is restless that um that that likes that thing of keeping it new cool um so shall i tell the charlie higson story as well yes please yes please i was gonna ask i've, I've got your email open i was like when's he gonna <laughs> so yeah so this was the other thing that occurred to me that was a really good thing and it was it sort of felt it was important to share was so very early on, when me and Mark were first, had first written that first script together, um, just after we'd written it, uh, or got a completed draft, so this was probably 1993, I guess, or maybe 92, um, and I was working part-time at Wardstones in Leeds, and we had lots of book events. Uh, it's one of the things I loved about doing that job, is got to meet many of my favourite authors. And Charlie Higson came, and at that time, uh, Charlie was he'd written a few quite a few novels i think it was he was on his second or third novel and they were they were those novels were it was before he started doing the ya stuff that he does now it was um these were sort of psychological thrillers but i also knew him because he was he wrote for harry enfield you know i knew his name from um from harry enfield's tv series and uh so you know knew that he, and it was it, this was pre fast show so so I went to, I thought well I'm going to I'm going to dare to take that script that me and Mark have written and go to the event and dare to speak to him afterwards and see if he'll read this script. And it and I I am I'm unlike many people I know like Andy and Mark who are who who are natural more natural networkers. I'm not. I feel I get very self-conscious and shy and awkward. Um, and so it doesn't come easily to me that sort of thing but I, I sort of you know screwed my courage to the mast and made myself do it because because uh, it was important and I knew it was an opportunity and sort of so shaking went up to him at the end of the event and you know said how much I liked what he did and that you know, would you read the script that I'd written and very gen- he was very generous and and very kind and that said absolutely and I gave it to him and you know that in itself was exhilarating that he'd just taken it but then he got back he he, he got back in touch he, he wrote a, a really wonderful letter um, about which came back quite quickly a week or two later and said how much you know he genuinely loved the script all said all the things he liked about it said that, that we could write and we could write funny I could remember that sentence I still carry that around with me now um, and then asked us to if he would he was putting this show together with Paul Whitehouse um, the sketch show which is what obviously went on to become the fast show and would we like to submit some some material 
so we sat down and wrote a load of sketches and I've yet to hear from him but <laughs> despite the fact that I've worked with him since never mentioned those sketches again uh, <laughs> but of course he came you know he, he, he was brilliant Charlie he came a lot to the um he didn't bite on any of those sketches and, and his way of, of dealing with it was just not to ever mention it but he did come and see the league in that, that very first run at um the canal cafe and he was someone who was around in those early days and was very encouraging um and then we did an me and mark did an episode of randall and hopkirk for him and you know he's he's somebody who i've had regular contact with over the years and um but that initial meeting you know that that was that I realise now it was really important because it, you know, it was a. I think that was the first affirmation with the comedy having someone you respected in the industry. You know, say you can write, and you can write funny, and I think that 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 was fuel for for about five years. You know, every time every, every rejection that would have had after that, it was like I would probably get the letter out from Charlie and read it you know and just remind myself and so those things are so important and so i think you know from so there's two things in it i think when you're on you know when you're at that starting out point being if you like me and not a natural networker be courageous because so much can come from it you know in terms of you don't know what can happen and even just a positive response is enormously valuable even if it's nothing more than that so it's really worth being brave and being courageous always and sort of daring to put your head above the parapet and then i think the flip of it is if you're in charlie's position being generous because because it because it it does so much and a simple gesture you know it was just the fact that he took half an hour or an hour to read the script and you know and another half an hour to write the letter and post it it was of incalculable value to me and mark um and so, you know, don't underestimate how important that might be if someone sticks a script in your hand, which doesn't mean you have to lie to someone because I don't think there's particularly value in that. You know, it's, sometimes it is better to, uh, and, uh, to let things go quietly. But if there, if you see the value, I think then to communicate it is, uh, you know, just that act alone is, is hugely, it's hugely important. That's, yeah, that's lovely. Sorry. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah. A lot of the a lot of the repeat messages on this podcast are having someone that believes in you, or at least someone who has said something that lets you know you can have belief in yourself. Yes, exactly that. Yeah, and I and I think because we're all insular in this industry a lot of the time, even when you're collaborating, you know, like you say, you're you're up in Yorkshire, you might might do work up there, you come down, but there's you know, you, a lot of the time you do spend on your own, even if you are collaborating, and and you know, like you might go away and write a script and then come back and then you work together, but there's there's always going to be moments where you where you need to know that somebody likes what you do um but it doesn't mask your e it doesn't mask it as an ego thing it masks it as a constructive thing that's right it wasn't an ego trip it was confirmation that you weren't insane <laughs> <laughs> i tell you what i'm gonna leave that there but thank you so much for coming back on no that's it and thank you sam thanks for thanks for letting me add those things no that was jeremy hearing about the power of negative thoughts and your attitude when you get kickbacks is so important i loved it the cost of creating films and how to get the courage to ask for help when he wanted feedback on his early scripts all of these things are just 
so important. I think they're so important that big people and people that have established themselves still talk about and still pass on down to people because I think often I look at people and I go, well, they're just doing it effortlessly. They're doing it without any help. And it's just, it's easy for them. And I, and I don't think it is. And I think it's important that we all realize and recognize that asking for help and taking help and having a positive attitude when it's negative, it's just important. It's just so important. So thank you. I can't thank him enough. His Twitter handle is in the show notes. So please do send him a thank you because it was amazing that he would take the time to do two pods essentially i was over the moon with this speaking of help edinburgh fringe i'm doing it it's fourth solo show it is at 8 35 p.m it is in the grass market it is called every room becomes a panic room when you overthink enough it is my favorite show i've ever done but uh, that it always should be please come uh it's five pound a ticket i'd really appreciate any support you could give uh if you can't come if you could just pass on the message if you could share a link if you could do anything you know tweet it tweet at me so that i can thank you personally i'll be keeping an eye on that link anyway and i've got alerts set up for things so i can thank everyone um it's not as narcissistic as it sounds i want to make sure that everyone gets a thank you that supports me and puts stuff out that helps me so anything and everything would really really be appreciated if you like this episode you might also like the episode with phil jupiter about the edinburgh fringe about the free fringe about the uh, paid fringe and about life beyond Nevermind the buzzcocks or you might enjoy the episode with Doug Stanhope about how he shunned the industry in many ways and built his own audience email by email onto his mailing list. Highly recommend both those episodes. I massively enjoyed both. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do it in several ways. You can leave a review. Here is, uh, we've got a couple of new reviews. I'm really happy that they're coming in. Please do keep them coming in. Um, I've got a review from someone who's called themselves ATIP, which is great because um, I know that they are an old school listener now because early on I was calling the pod ATI, which uh, unless unless they are just lazy with their screen name, either way works. Um, so I don't know who they are because I can't work it out from this, but ATIP, five stars. Just listen to the Armando Minucci episode. Very entertaining and informative. Interesting to hear how things have changed in the world of commissioning new comedy. These podcasts are a truly fabulous resource for the UK comedy industry. Thank you, ATIP. I massively appreciate your time. Uh, Fiona Coffee Time, which is a bloody banging screen name. I've met Fiona. That is awesome. Well played you. Fiona Coffee Time has given this five stars. Uh, she's called it a treasure trove of ideas and inspiration. Not usually a big concern consumer of podcasts but if you want to make your mark without wasting heaps of time and money you'd be daft not to listen to what the experts have to say simon is an engaging interviewer thank you very much who who lets subjects do the talking thank you very much that's a really lovely review please do keep those reviews coming in they help with the charts they help with making the podcast look better and it more exciting to bigger and better guests as we go forward as you can tell i'm really pushing forward and trying to get bigger and better guests on and that only happens if you guys support it uh you can also join the pod you can also join the podcast group called rc industry podcast on facebook that is the best place to ask your questions to upcoming guests to get your answers from them directly please join that that'd be amazing also you can donate you can become a patron from one dollar an episode is this worth 80p i think it's worth a lot more but if you could only give 80p or a dollar in this case please do that everything and everything is massively appreciated so that or you can give a one-off donation via paypal on my website there are links in the show notes to everything all support is massively appreciated financial time shares everything just please keep that going the rc industry podcast is a fruit that got in gravity's way production for the internet all elements were created by me comedian simon kane thank you very much for listening thank you very much for subscribing and thank you very much for rating and donating if you do i will see you all in about 14 days time bye